You're listening to Coding Blocks. I said a er in the beginning of that. Er, you're li- er, you're listening. That's how it came out. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, I'll figure it out as we go along. Well, um, can I get a? Can, can, is it too late? Can I get a pull request to fix this? All right. So episode two hundred two. That's what you're listening to. Uh, well, that's the episode. The show is Coding Blocks. You probably figured that out. I might have said that already. We'll get there. Don't give me that look. I see that. Just wait for it. Wait for it. We Patience. Failed. No, this is this is the this is success. This is what success looks like. Ten, ten years of this. <laughs> you know, I, at this point, I'm not going to apologize for it. Like, yeah. you know what you're in for? Uh, I'm with you there. All right. So uh, subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcast. Uh, really hope we're there by now. Uh, hey, and we fixed some Stitcher issues. So, you know, hey, uh, we're probably there. Probably again. It, again, it's so it's so funny you say that because I was actually going to mention that. Hey, we have one feed on Stitcher now, yeah. and it has all the episodes. We're like, no longer amazing. in triplicate, so you know. Mad. It took us ten years to fix that. By the way, <laughs> it really did. Everything uh, from now on is going to be like it took us ten years. All right, so visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, uh, discussion, and more. Yep, send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net or follow us on Twitter at codingblocks. And uh, if you notice any other mistakes, you can hit up our Jira at uh, jira.cv. <laughs> I'm kidding. That was a CB number one that we closed, actually. But uh, anyway, codingblocks.net, you can find all our actual links uh, to socials and whether, whatever else at the uh, top of the page. And with that, I'm Joe Zach. I'm Michael Outlaw. And I'm Alan Underwood. All right, and so today... As was one of our New Year's resolutions to finish a book, we're continuing down that path with designing data-intensive applications, and we are talking about transactions. But, but before, first. Yes, right. first. Here we go. Here we go. Yes. There I'm, you go. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not even going to wait for you guys to be like, you do it, outlaw, because I was like, I know what's coming. All right, so uh, from iTunes, uh, obviously we're, we're – you know, giving thanks to everybody that left us a review. So from iTunes, we have uh, J Law One Fifteen, Cutting Corner Barbershop, uh, Mergy, maybe, uh, yep. and Jack Un Jack Unver Unver Unver. Okay, <laughs> I didn't think you were going to struggle with these, man. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, that one that. Well, uh, the, the mergy one threw me cause I wasn't, uh, sure. Like, you know, how the E's would be pronounced, you know, but, uh, I definitely didn't think about pronouncing unver as, you know, as unver like the, you know, like that. I don't know, whatever. I, you know what? I'm renaming him. He's now Jack Unverwood. So <laughs> welcome to the club. bud. <laughs> and, uh, from audible, Mr. This is, I gotta be a formal here. Mr. William M. Davies. So thank you to Very all nice. of you. Uh, and so, uh, you know, speaking of uh, mergies, did, did you happen to catch his? His was like a super long review, but it was also a super good one, too, where he was talking about like the, you know, he made a, a complete, you know, 180 in his career choice. It was a really good review if you haven't read it. I'm but read it right now. So at any rate, uh, just wanted to say thank you uh, to everyone um, in his case specifically, uh, if I remember it correctly off the top of my head, he, he had studied mathematics. He'd gotten a mathematics degree and was having trouble, um, 
you know, in the real job world and ended up pivoting to, uh, software development and, uh, listening to us in the, in free time and, you know, recommendations on books and whatnot helped him actually land his, uh, first job in the software development world. So, you know, it's great stories like that, that, uh, you know, are always like very nice to read. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's great. Hey, and uh, I got a, I got a tip for you, Mr. William M. Davies. Uh, you left us a review on Audible, which is anyone can do who uh, uses Audible. Uh, I just noticed that Audible released a program called Audible Rewards where you can earn rewards for doing things, uh, mostly spending money with them, of course. <laughs> but also, it's got like little challenges. Like if you uh, listen 20 minutes a day for the next five days between January 7th and 31st, then you get to uh, pick one of these titles or you get a $5 reward or just like little stuff like that. So it's kind of cool. If you haven't been to the actual uh, – audible website for a while and you're a member uh and you like audio content i hope you do then uh, that's something to check out pretty cool i just saw it today that's excellent uh also uh game jam is probably over by the time you're listening to this um but you should check out all the games uh you can go there play them see see what other people do and if you didn't do it this year because you were afraid you didn't have time or you're not really experienced with the kind of tools and you were worried about something then you should not worry about that and uh, next year, you should just sign up because even if you just got a couple hours, start with a tutorial, you know, and then jump off, personalize it, stick your face on, you know, instead of the character or whatever that you throw darts at um, or, you know, somebody else's face. I don't know. Uh, it's your game. Do what you want. But you should try it and don't worry about not having enough time or, you know, don't worry about anything. Just go have fun because it's fun. I recommend yeah. using Joe's face. Like set yeah. up your dartboard, <laughs> get a good printout. Get a picture of his shins. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of them on MySpace still, actually, if you go. <laughs> awesome. Oh, man, hey. I'm still on Friendster. Okay. <laughs> hey, and lastly, um, we actually have had a couple people um, visit this link recently and send us some self-addressed stamp envelopes. So if you'd like some swag, some stickers and whatnot, um, make sure you head over to codingblocks.net slash swag and uh, – you can see where to mail us a self-addressed stamp envelope and we will get some stuff into the mail for you. So check that out. That's how the, the internet gets into the real world, right? Yes. Yes. The virtual into the reality. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like just down. It doesn't even go. They didn't even like forward it anywhere. Somebody had to buy it. Come on. You're our just sitting on it waiting for the, the re- renewal revolution. All right. Transactions is what we're talking about. So, um, so we all, you know, read the chapter, of course. Um, d- were there any like big kind of change in minds or th- like any perspective changes you got from this first kind of chapter or did it align up with your preconceptions about what transactions were uh, in databases and systems in general? It aligned. Yeah, the- I would say that with me too, but I like the, the clarity and yes. articulation. I I liked some of their takeaways that we'll get into with like acid and that kind of stuff. I, I really enjoyed their take on, on some of it. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, it all, it all lined up pretty good for me. Yeah. Same with you outlaw. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, <clears throat> just to make sure though, that I didn't mess up cause we're focusing on the acid portion. I thought, yeah, we are. Okay. Yep. It sounded so like, mainly it sounded like you guys databases. were talking about like the rest of it, you know, like no. later. And I'm like, um, but no, this no, part just, was just kind of like, <laughs> uh, rehash or not rehash, but, uh, 
solidifying stuff we've talked about before, just going into more detail. Yeah, I think it, it definitely fills in some the details on some of the stuff, but also for people that aren't familiar with transactions, especially, I mean, this was mainly focused on like um, relational databases and, and how those have been doing these things for years. It's this is a really good episode to listen to if you've never actually done a transaction or don't even know why you would do one, right? So yeah, so that was my reason for asking. Is like coming up from like a relational world is kind of like yeah, tr- transactions. Like it's obvious to me why you need them and want them, and you know that's great. And I thought there's like a whole generation of like web developers or whoever that have like grown up with Firebase or uh, you know Document DBs or not. What's a what's S three one? No SQL. Uh, yeah, what's oh, Dynamo is what I was looking for. Oh, like, Dynamo, yep. We've grown up on, you know, kind of Dynamo primarily and maybe transactions in those, like, we'll get into it, but, like, they're not as prominent or they're not as powerful or there's some kind of trade-offs there. And and so it was just kind of interesting to me to think, like, that, uh, you know, there's there's people that, you know, this wouldn't be reviewed for. So I don't know. Hopefully you'll get something out of the episode, though, uh, dear listener. Yeah. And so with that, they opened up this chapter, um, which does anybody remember which chapter it was? I, I think – Chapter seven. All right. So Joe recurs and Joe a long time ago um, mentioned that we should at least like say that stuff. So if you're trying to follow along, you know, um, this, this would be a good place to pick up here. So to start this off, one of the creators of Google Spanner, which is one of their uh, databases that can scale like crazily. um, When they were talking about creating this thing, they said that the general idea is it's better to have transactions as a feature that's available, even if it has performance issues, and let the developers decide if the performance trade-off is worth it, instead of not having transactions at all and putting all that complexity on the developer. And I thought that was really interesting because, um, like we said just a second ago, we're mainly talking about relational databases here. I think Google Cloud Spanner is sort of an evolution or an extension of of sort of i don't know a scalable database to where transactions are more difficult right like it's a distributed type database system and relational too yeah and so so doing a transaction as we'll talk about as we get into this a little bit further is way more complicated in that world than it is when you're dealing with a single system right and so it was interesting that they added that there saying, Hey, we know there's going to be performance hits, but it makes sense to add this so that people could take advantage of it if they need to. So there, there was also like um, later parts in this chapter two, where the author calls out, like not necessarily related to this quote, but kind of stating this quote in another way where, you know, you might decide that um, depending on your needs that, you know, you might pick another system because of that transaction cost, the performance cost, right? Like, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, parallelization matters more to you, for example, or, you know, whatever the case might be, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so uh, one, one other quick tidbit I just can't resist. Uh, so Spanner, when it first came out, I remember kind of thinking like, this is like, uh, when I was studying for the GCP, um, certification, uh, for Google cloud, and uh, I remember kind of reading about it and thinking, like, why Why do we need another database? And I uh, ended up reading about it and, like, realizing that it was all about scale plus relational and it offered transactions. But at the time, I, I didn't know any other databases that were, like, distributed to that kind of uh, level and relational and offered transactions. But uh, I was just looking uh, 
I've heard the term new sequel a few times and I still can't really, you know, describe it. Like, I don't know enough about it, but, um, I was just on Wikipedia and noticed that it's listed as one of the few kind of, this is like new generation of what they call new sequel, uh, terms and, you know, uh, databases. And who knows if that term is going to stick around, you know, it's a, it's awfully cute. So I have a feeling it will, but, uh, other databases here you might've heard of that are kind of like considered in this kind of new generation or like cockroach DB. Um, they've got couch page base listed here, which I'm kind of surprised about. Um, a bunch of other ones I've not heard of, uh, Yugabyte DB, which I've seen on, um, on Hacker News a few times. So just kind of interesting. I just wanted to call out that, uh, Google Spanner in particular is a, a very interesting database. And I think it was probably like brand spanking new when this version of the book came out. And I think I heard there's a new version of this book coming out sometime, I think this year. Uh, and I'll be interested to see what they've added. Oh, look that up right now. We're going to have to hurry up and finish it then. Hey, so seeing as I'd never heard of this and you threw it out there, this Wikipedia page, new SQL is a class of relational database management systems that seek to provide the scalability of no SQL systems, but for online transaction processing. So OLTP workloads while maintaining asset guarantees of a traditional database system. So that's pretty crazy. There's like you said, there's, you know, a dozen or more that are listed here that are all looking to fill that niche of scalable, but yet transactional. Yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty and cool. Definitely. Should we mention too that uh, this is my, this is my last diversion for at least five minutes. Uh, should we mention that uh, if you leave a comment on this, uh, we will send you a book. Yeah, we should do that. Uh, well, right. well you'll we be, might you'll, send you a book. You, you'll be entered for a chance to get a book. <laughs> you get a thousand, a thousand comments. On Let me this check with like, the lawyers real quick. Hold yeah. on. That yeah. was that, was that, was that take <laughs> that work? Can we can we roll with that? Okay. They said yeah. they gave a thumbs up. All right, All right cool. Good. Yeah, we got plywood on the windows next time. So it's shuttering up. Oh man. All right. So there are a number of things that can go wrong during a database interaction, right? Uh, never. The, no. <laughs> I've never seen it. Have you seen my oh. code? It doesn't no, it's perfect. That's not gonna yeah. happen. That's right. So the database software or the underlying hardware could fail um, during a write. We've actually seen hardware failures on database systems, and that's that's never fun. Um, the application. I mean, you, that- you really hope it's not the database software. Like you really, you really. I'm not saying that it can't happen. I'm can't. I'm not saying that they don't have their bugs. But like of those two, I'm going to venture to say like more often than not, the average person we we're probably going to see the hardware failure first. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I got to say, I think for databases, I, I think you're right. They've mostly been pretty rock solid over the years, right? Yeah, they're hardened pretty good. Unless you run out of disk space and then all kinds of weird things happen, well, right? But that's, but, is that, but that's hardware, though. That's, no. Would you count that as a software thing? You ran out of space. Your hardware ran out of space. Yeah, it should have it should have done something because <laughs> it knew it was approaching the limit, right? I, I don't know. I don't know who to blame that on, but if your database runs out of disk space, I mean, I I kind of blame your hard drive for not growing. <laughs> the, Time I to be a big that, boy and grow up. That's right. Oh, uh, so um, the other thing, the application that uses the database, it may crash in the middle of a series of operations, right? So your sweet little web web endpoint that you created that's doing 20 different things. Like it might fail at some point. Looking at you, um, Jay-Z. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, can, I can fail. Can <laughs> um, network problems. Those arise. I don't, 
I think in the cloud world, we see that more than we used to with like on-prem things, but definitely database local host. And then you don't have that problem. (laughs) I'm full of all kinds of solutions tonight, by the way. Oh man. (laughs) Somebody's going to go write the next version of something awesome out there. And everything's going to be running on a single computer. (laughs) Um, Multiple rights to the same records from multiple places, AKA erase condition. Um, Reads could happen to partially updated data, which may not make sense, right? Like if something's being updated somewhere and then you read part of another record somewhere and they don't match up anymore. Um, and then race conditions between clients can cause odd problems. Yep. And, uh, so reliable systems, um, you know, the word reliable, um, you know, it's kind of got a lot of different definitions but you're like your general conception of the word reliable being a system that you can trust uh they handle those situations and ensure that they don't cause catastrophic so i'm so excited about this book we're getting back to it y'all they don't <laughs> cause catastrophe catatrophy catastrophe failures <laughs> but it's a lot of work and we've talked about that a lot of times like you know getting that extra nine in your uh nines is a ton of work, uh, like exponential amount of work. And uh, transactions are basically our tool uh, that we've been using uh, for decades. Uh, do you remember what year you said that um, the white paper kind of describing transactions came out? It was like 40 years ago. I thought it was, I mean, yeah, it was like I think late it was 83 70s. or something. Okay. Yeah. So I thought there. it was like 78 or 9, something like that. Yeah. Am I like, wrong? No, that that's what I recall. It was somewhere in the 70s. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up a link to that, and we'll have that in the show notes. Um, to because the, the term for paper. the term for acid came out in the early '80s, if I recall. But okay, uh, yeah, the term for acid was coined in '83. And we've talked about this too, like uh, the bee trees, like a lot of the technologies, even like LSM kind of different databases we've talked about in the past. A lot of them were uh, written based on research done way 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 back and really haven't evolved a whole lot since it's really just been a matter of like getting the tools in place and getting the experience kind of building these systems uh that to finally kind of match up with the theory behind it which is crazy to me well some of that i wonder i question i've always questioned like is that a, a matter of you know hardware wasn't where we needed to be like um global networking definitely wasn't you know so that so there were things that you could theorize about but you didn't you know you were maybe ahead of your time so you you couldn't like put it into use practically yeah i mean it's the tools i think about like uh what uh you know visual studio was like 40 years ago (laughs) it probably didn't exist 40 years ago like who knows what it was um i think it was a lot more visual back then Uh, when did visual studio was okay now we got to know i remember back when it first came out the big appeal was like you could like drag and drop buttons and stuff well, I'm going to guess like it, I'm thinking maybe it would predate. It wasn't like ne- necessarily studio, but I'm thinking more basic, you know, like a visual C- visual basic or something. Yeah. So let's see. 97 is the first version of visual studio. Before that, they were all separate products. Huh? So now I got to know when Vim was released. 91. So this stuff predates Vim. I mean, that tells you what tooling was like at the time, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but to your point, though, it is is insane that this stuff has basically been around unchanged 
for several decades now. Like it works the same way now for, on these single system um, pieces of software, these databases, as it has been for years and years. And I should say too, I, I looked up Vim, which is, I'm so used to seeing it that way, but VI was released in 1976. So VI was in fact around and uh, that's probably the tool they were using at the time they were researching this stuff. It's crazy. Well, you, you, the the M in Vim is for improved. For improved. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's it's. I think it's supposed to be like a concatenation of the two words yeah. where they share the I, or at least that was what I thought. Yeah, I, that's my understanding as well. All right. So, what is a transaction? Give it to us. Okay. Okay. So it's a way to group uh, related reads and or writes into a single operation. So as an example, if <clears throat> let's go back to our canonical e-commerce example, if you were to place an order and you hit that, you know, uh, submit button on that order, uh, depending on the system, you might want to log what the order was and including payment information but you also might want to decrement current inventory as part of that process too. And so the table that has the order and the table that has inventory, those are going to be different things. So you're going to need, we're dealing in a SQL world here. So two different SQL statements that are going to do that thing. But should the, should you be able to successfully write the order, but you are not able to decrement the, inventory you don't want to leave that order in place in this theoretical example uh so you would you would uh roll back both of them and let the customer redo it now the reality is that's a horrible example because you just go ahead and take the order (laughs) yeah well a bank accounts is a good one right it's like i'm moving money from this bank account and moving it over there which of those should happen first? Well, no, they need to both happen or they need to both not happen. We can't have, you know, money disappearing over here and then not making it over there or vice versa, money just appearing over here without coming from anywhere. So that's a great example of somewhere where like it absolutely cannot ever go wrong. And you imagine like a, even a, say like a Bank of America or something like how many transactions do they process in a single day? Right. In, even in an hour. It's insane. So you can't have even a uh, 0.1% failure rate. You need to have like zero failures. Oh, well, as soon as you brought up the banking example, <clears throat> I immediately, I mean, I think it was bank of America. Like they, they, there was issues where they had to, um, there was regulations put in place related to, uh, overdraft charges. You know where I'm going with this? Oh, they were rearranging, right? Yeah. They, they had figured out that if they rearranged the order of the transactions, they could maximize the number of, overdraft fees yeah to charge more so like you know in reality in in order of events it might have only been once but they were like hey we reorder these things we get you like three times yeah order my biggest first there we go yeah isn't that ridiculous yeah so you know transactions matter no that had nothing to do with transactions but whatever it was it came to mind that was that was my tangent so <laughs> <laughs> I according I I get at least like what eight more of those because Jay Z had several something yeah 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 so yeah I, like we said uh, the idea here is that a transaction as a whole either completes and we call that a, a commit when it says done it's you know committed uh, everyone's happy or it fails and you can get uh, like an abort or rollback um, and to, there's a couple different options there but uh, if the the application fails the application can decide what to do 
Wait, you said that wrong. If the transaction if the fails. Transaction fails. The yeah, application can decide. You said if the application fails. Oh, no. My what? Well, I mean, that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for recognizing. Yes. Finally, right. somebody's on board. Yes. Yeah. If the transaction fails, then the application can choose what to do. Um, now, that's interesting that it says it that way because that, that to me, speaks of something different. Because typically, if you're doing something in a database, right, like let's say it's a store procedure or something like that, right, you wrap you wrap the entire thing in a transaction, and you don't necessarily tell it what to do, right? You basically hit abort, and it rewinds everything for you yeah, to but, a certain degree. But then the, then, then the calling API layer would get some kind of an oh, error, and that right, API right. layer could decide, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retry it again right. or i'm going to like bubble up an error message to the user and let the user decide you know hey let i i do want to place that order and i don't know why you won't let me yeah all right yeah good point so so to separate that out again say it say it one more time you have a transaction it's going to rewind everything that was done in those processes right and then your application is going to choose hey what do i want to do now that i know that this thing didn't succeed what do I want to do from here? I can either go into a retry loop, send some feedback, whatever, but, but they're separate. Right. And that's, that's the important thing. The transaction is doing something and then your application is responding to the failure. Now let's think about this though, because you know, this, this being uh, th- the book designing data intensive applications, we can't have these types of conversations without actually thinking about like how we might implement this in a file. Right. And so immediately, like, as I was going through this book, I'm like, you know, man, how, 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 how would you implement that? And so I was kind of thinking like, you know, behind the scenes, there are these, you know, these are all files where this is all being written to, right? But it's being stored in some kind of a fashion and we've covered the different data structures that it might be using and whatnot and patterns. But, you know, is it, the best that I could come up with was like, well, maybe behind under the covers, it's like opening up that file with a lock on it so that it is the only thing that could write to the file. And then it tries to write the first thing to the file. And then if it's writing the second thing to the file, then it's still free to like undo its changes to one or more of the files, you know, however many it has, but it has this exclusive lock on those files. And and maybe that's either because it's like at the file system level, it's got the lock or it's just within the application in like, a um, you know, a, uh, uh, what, what were those, the, 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 to single thread to serialize the lock, you, you know, you would do the object lock in the code. And I can't think of what synchronize or it is synchronized. Uh, I didn't think that you're was talking about the two phase locking. Yeah. Yeah. Like a on. double, you, like a, you're referring to like a double check locking, but yeah. Um, you know, that, that was the best that I could think of was that like, it's, it's locking who can like how many process could write. So meaning that only one thing could be writing to that file at one time, but then that kind of boggled my mind because I'm like, wow, like you're like so limiting how many things could write to a given file. Now, going backwards remember like one table could actually be because of segments right uh and and depending on the 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 data structure that you might be using like in the case of like a tree you know one of the various trees uh that we've talked about um you know you might have one file per each of those those trees which i think that they had referred to as like page sizes right so 
you know, you might say like, okay, well, it's fine for other clients to read and write to records that are not between 25 and 50, but the file that has those records, I've got an exclusive lock on that because I'm changing something on one of those rows, like inventory count, for example. Yeah. So that was, that was the best way that I could come up with in my mind, like how you might implement a, uh, a transactional kind of system at like the lowest level. Yeah, I think you're uh, you're really close. I, I have uh, we need to read further, of course, to get into the details. But I think that's that was pretty much where we're going to get to. And there's some problems that are going we're going to hit, like with like, well, what if I say lock these three files? I lock the first one, lock the second one, and ooh, somebody beat me to the third one. And meanwhile, they they locked the first file and they tried to go to the second, and I've got it locked. And so now we have to decide like who wins and how do we give up and how do we know, how do we tell, you know, the readers to basically stop and like hands off all these rows at the same time. And so you get into like two phase commits and write ahead logs and a few other kind of fancy features. But I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head on the general theory behind it. And now think, think into like, uh, like just going like SQL server specific, but there's, you know, uh, I'm sure that there's like similar keywords and other uh, database systems too, but like you could do like a select with unlock or, uh, yeah, no lock, uh, select with, with no lock. Sorry. Um, what did I or say? Did I update. say unlock? Actually, it was, no, yeah, you said with unlock, but actually it's never used for a select. It's usually used for an update, right? So an update with no lock. No, and, no, no. You would do a select from with no lock. And then that way, y- you know, you weren't waiting for locks to be released. To be released. So you could do dirty reads well, you can also do with a no lock on an update, which means that you could be writing and not locking records, which is oh, also dangerous. I, I right? would never do that. Like, can we erase that from our, we'll never talk about that. That's gross. But, but you could definitely do a dirty read. And in that inventory example, like, you know, I'm, I might have one process that's in, it's literally in the process of decrementing the inventory. And you're like, well, I don't need to display like something that accurate. So just select it with no lock so that I can at least put up some semblance of like where we are without having to wait. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Without having to wait on, on getting that, uh, that lock on that table. Hey, and, and I don't think they mention it anywhere in this chapter. So it's probably worth calling out. You do have to be a little bit careful when you're writing some of these transactions because you can put yourself into a state where you deadlock everything. Right. And, and once you deadlock things, nothing happens in the database, right? Like the entire thing basically blows up at some point and, and throws an error and kills all the connections and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. So a deadlock in the simplest form would basically mean that you have two processes that are each waiting on the other to finish right. because they're each waiting on the other to finish. They'll never each finish. So they're in an infinite loop of waiting yep. and that's a deadlock situation. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, so in general, like this whole point of a transaction is to make things easier for you as the developer to handle something when, when your writes or your reads fail, right? It's supposed to make it a lot easier. You oh. basically wrap, wrap a transaction around something and Hey, it should all work. And if it does, I'll commit it. And if it doesn't, I'll, I'll roll it back. And, and, and you don't actually have to do any extra work. You know, can you imagine if you didn't have a, a database that was taking care of this stuff for you and you were an e-commerce website and you were go to place an order and now you've got to write all that logic that says like, is this table locked? Is this table locked? Is this, oh, I didn't get the lock. Okay. Now we got a deadlock. What do we do? Like you have to figure that out and then you go to uh, implement the address book. 
guess what? <laughs> same thing. Taxes, same thing. Just over and over again, you're re-implementing the same problems. Like, would it be nice to have all that stuff uh, stored, you know, all that logic kind of happening uh, locally for you? Well, I think that was the point of the Google Spanner quote, right? The the, the comment from, um, I'm trying to remember, they, they listed his name, James Colbert. I must think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> that, you know, the whole point was that like, it'd be better if the tool at least provided that capability. And, you know, if you don't need it for your particular application, fine, great. But, oh man, to your point, if you had to like reinvent that logic. Oh man, it'd be brutal. I, I mean, we gave a couple of simple examples earlier with the e-commerce thing, right? Like with having an order and then inventory or even um, uh, moving money from one account to another. I mean, if you, it doesn't seem all that valuable when we're talking about transactions in such a small scope. If you're talking about like a, a, a fairly complex ordering system, typically you're going to have an order table. You're going to have an order details table or order line items, whatever you want to call it. Then you're going to have an inventory table. You're probably also going to have um, a payments table. You're going to have a bunch of tables that are all interrelated. And, and so you might have six or seven tables that you're touching just to place one order. Right. And so that's where this transaction comes into play is, you know, the first thing you do is insert into that order table to get you a new order ID, right? Like just thinking out loud, something simple, then you're going to use that order ID in the other tables. And, and as you start inserting into these other tables, you're going to start using data from those tables to use in additional tables. Right. And so as you're doing that, you're cascading this data all the way down across seven or eight tables just imagine trying to rewind that on your own, right? Oh, I got to back all these new IDs out. Um, I need to make sure those are cleared up. Oh, and by the way, there could be two orders trying to be written at the same time. I need to make sure that I untangle all that stuff, like super duper hard problems to solve. Yeah. Re-update inventory or add it back to the inventory. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, and there's... I think that's the crazy part is like what you were talking about with locking files and all that, like that's kind of how it has to happen because you could imagine if you didn't lock certain portions of data that you're trying to update, imagine in your rollback, you're going to have race conditions because somebody else was decrementing inventory. You're trying to re-increment inventory, like um, which one wins out? Like you're going to run into all kinds of weird issues, right? So, so here's where, here's where my mind was going with that though. Cause like, again, I was, taking it from the approach of like, because of this book, right? Like this, this book has made me like all the things that I've taken for granted for years related to, you know, my use of databases. And now I'm like, okay, well let me think about this. Like for real, like how, how might I implement this? But what happens in that case where like, let's say, I think you call it out, like you might have six tables, I think was your example. So, okay, yes. fine. So you have all, you have uh exclusive, uh, you know, you've opened up six different files exclusively, right? Nothing else can, can open those up because you're going to, you're opening it up for, for writing. And now you're saving out those files and the first five you're able to save successful, save and close successfully. But the sixth one you can't, right? Like it's still like, even it's like turtles all the way down. It's like transactions right. within transactions within transactions. Right. Like, to know that like every little bit of that. So, I mean, it really, it really goes to show that like, you know, I was thinking of this, this quote uh, the other day, like we really are standing on the shoulders of, of giants because like every little problem, like as a, 
an industry or a society that we we solve, that thing becomes no longer a problem for us. It just becomes something we take for granted and we move on to something larger, right? You know? So yeah, think about that next time you uh, take a look at your node modules folder. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> well, that's I a giant for real. Yeah. I did hello world. How do I have 12,000 files in here? Because yeah, you didn't yeah. want to write your own array. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So where we go here. So yeah. Talking about like, uh, do, do we give examples of not all applications that need, uh, transactions? Nah, I haven't talked about that yet. Did you have some? Oh, I marked it. Oh, oh, I I would think that things like stock tickers, right? Like that's that's one that I don't think you actually need transactions. Tell that to for. the SEC. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, but, so in all seriousness, though, do you think that we're actually storing data for every price change of everything that happened every day from now? Like, just imagine how long these stock tickers have been online. There's no way they're they're tracing these movements every day and, and retaining it for years on end. It, they can't be, maybe they are. I've, I've wondered that several times. I don't know. I mean, like I, I kind of, that specific example. Um, I don't know. There was a, there was a, there's an interesting documentary, uh, that I just finished watching about the Madoff scandal. And like part of the way that they were found was there was a mathematician at a competing firm that was asked to by his boss, like, Hey, look, we got to be able to compete with, with these guys. I don't know what they're doing, but here's, here's their returns. You figure out how we can make a product that competes with that. And the mathematician, like he's, he's looking, he's like, this is impossible. Right. And to his part of his defense of like, we can't possibly do this is he tracks down like, here we we can we know exactly how many transactions of this specific type happen on any given day in Wall Street and in order for their uh fund to to be as successful as it is you need 100 times the the what actually happens so i say all that example because i don't know maybe they do have that kind of movement they 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 it's big money so you kind of want to hope that there's some documentation of it yeah. yeah, some record of it. So I don't know. Maybe that's not the best example is where I'm going. So I, I can think of one that probably doesn't matter at all. Logs, right? Like if you're writing logs, you don't care about transactions on that stuff for the most part. Um, and and there's tons of things writing logs out nowadays. So you're not updating anything. It's write only stuff. You, you don't care. What about a poll? Like if uh, you're voting on stuff and like maybe stuff comes in out of order, maybe you lose a vote or two. But if you've got millions of votes, you know, who cares? Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Moving along. Moving along. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't really touched on a sensitive I, subject there. I, yeah. I was, I was like, wow, Jay-Z. What a horrible example. Yeah. That um, one's worse. What the what is wrong with the two of you? I, okay. Here's wait, one. What's that, wrong with logs? Logs is good. Maybe that wasn't your first one. No, it wasn't. The, 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 I, I, I was thinking that maybe a better example, and you may disagree, would be like a thumbs up, kind of like like button on, you know, whatever on some platform, right? Like, you know, but, but that's a vote, right? But at the same time, oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to give my concession speech. Hold on. Oh, God, that's so amazing. Uh, I give. 
<laughs> no, but that's that's definitely a good one. Or, or like a, a rating on on a movie or or something like that, right? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like it's it's nothing like mission it doesn't it doesn't stuff. matter except for like our our uh, you know the the chemical in our brain. What's it? I can't remember the name. Dopamine. Of it. The dopamine hit. You know when we're like, oh, but it was five. What happened? I mean, Reddit is like that, right? Like Reddit. Sometimes you can post a you can post a. a submission on Reddit and depending on uh you know what random server you might get, get uh be hitting on you'll see a different uh upvote count. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. yeah, if you if you refresh the page even it will change counts on you. Oh. Um, that's a, that's an upvote. So I don't want to confuse it with everything else that's going on. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> oh, you know what? Th- that reminds me of something. All right. So this is my tangent so far. Um, number one, uh, I found a community that is way harsher than even developers, uh, which, which is crazy, right? Because if you say something wrong in a post online or on Reddit, God forbid, you're going to get destroyed, right? Like they're coming at you with pitchforks and, and, and torches and everything. You want to take a guess at the other, the other community that just is vile. <laughs> like they're just so mean. I'm so afraid of what you're going to say. Oh, I was going to say it's college sports, but I don't know. Nah. I mean, that, that that's always been that way in sports. Oh um, no. Audio audiophile people like just straight up dirty to each other. It is, it is like a mean industry. Um, well, as as you were talking about Reddit in that regard, like I was literally in my mind recalling like audiophile conversations on Reddit. So now you like mix the two worlds, right? And it's, it's the worst. Yeah. It's, it's truly abysmal type stuff. Like it's, it's not even fun to read most of the time. So, um, anyways, all right. So, so back to this thing. Um, so I think your examples were great of, of types of applications where you just don't care, right? Like it, it doesn't matter. You don't need a transaction. You don't need to roll back anything there. It's not going to hurt anything. How do you know if you need a transaction though? Uh, I think you'd have to ask yourself like what happens in your application if you didn't uh, if that if that thing didn't happen, what's the downside? So going back to Jay Z's example of the the bank transfer, right? Like if you were trying to transfer money from your bank account to pay a bill, and your bank screwed up and didn't that didn't happen, right? Then you would you could be in trouble, like with whatever that bill was in that case. But also on the flip side if they only did it one way, so let's say they, they failed in deducting the money from your account. So, you know, you win bank error in your favor, but uh, they did pay out the money to the bill collector. Then it's costing them. It's literally like that error is literally costing them. So you got to ask yourself, like, what's the, what does it mean if I don't get this thing? Yeah. So, so like, what is the, the guarantee how how is there a safety net around this thing, right? So that's that's one. Does there need to be one? And and that's a good one. Here's one thing to consider too: is just your number of objects. If you're only updating one like entity, like one row in a table, it's kind of less important than you have transactions. Assuming your database is smart about like having uh, atomicity, so it's able to just update that row. If you have 
two objects that you're updating, like two tables or maybe two different databases, a relational database and a NoSQL database or this system and that system, uh, then your need for transactions becomes much higher. Even if it's a trivial or not trivial, but like a, a not very important use case, your chances of things going sideways just by having more than one object being updated uh, at a time is much greater. Yep. The the other thing to consider though, and they touched on it in the Google Spanner thing is what's, what's the cost? What's the trade-off of using a transaction, right? Um, I can tell you, in just in things that I used to do way back in the past where we'd update, you know, millions of records at a time, you put that in a transaction and it seems like a great idea because you want all that stuff to succeed. But if it does fail for some reason, your rollback can take three to four times as long to do. And now you've put your database in an unusable state for, you know, whatever the foreseeable future is. So you do have to consider like, what is my use case and can I afford the the cost of running a transaction on this or do I need to figure out another way to do it? Oh, and, and I think uh, to wrap this one up, we said that, you know, this chapter, they're basically focusing on single node um, and distributed databases, um, things that sort of have transactions built into them. Uh, although, you know, Joe Zach brought up the, the new SQL thing, which I'd never heard of, which is really cool. Um, but when we get into another episode, we'll be talking specifically about distributed databases and, and how things would happen in that world. My guess is a lot of people read this book and then they're like, all right, I'm going to make a new SQL database. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, are you saying that as new SQL as in the new term that we've learned tonight or new space SQL? No, no, the, the new SQL new term. Okay. That's going to, that, that, this is why that term isn't going to take off. No, it's not going to work well. Yeah. It's dead to me already. <laughs> it's dead no, on wait, arrival. Is it, you know, I assumed it was new SQL, but maybe it's new SQL. <laughs> new SQL. What about, put it out there. what about next SQL? That sounds that we should, we should just go coin that one. Can, do we have to be clever? Can can we just admit that we're done with all the cleverness that happens on all these terms and instead just like put a product out there and we'll be like, yeah, okay. Yeah, call Fine. it product Z. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I mean, we just talked about Vim, though. I mean, that one kind of stuck. But did. I mean, but but Vim, there's, you don't refer to Vim as like a classification of Vim editors. Uh, you're right. Yeah. All right. See what I did there? See, this is why. So the Vim was a great example. Just make your product and be done with it. Yep. Stop trying to be cute with it. One and done. All right. All right. Uh, somebody's going to come out. Michael, there is a term for the Vim editors and they're called <laughs> <laughs> Linux editors. <laughs> Michael, I don't sound like that. Stop it. All right. <laughs> All right. So I think Jay-Z, you've been voted to do this oh, next part. No. Who voted for that? No. <laughs> More voting? What? Really? What? All right. Get ready. Why? Get ready. Why? Was this a survey that I missed? How did this happen? This is what happens when the ballots aren't properly counted. Oh, God. <laughs> the transaction didn't complete. <laughs> Yeah, I'll show you how it's done. So, hey, tell you what, uh, we do a podcast here, and you know what we really need? Reviews. We need your review. We need your five-star review, 
really helps us out. Uh, it helps people find the show and uh, makes us feel really good and really uh, it's a lot of fun. It doesn't even have to be a long one. It could be a short one. Uh, just make sure to leave those five stars. We try to make this easy for you by having uh, a link on a website that will link you to Stitcher or Audible or uh, you know Apple or anywhere else that you might listen to on the podcast. And you can find that at HTTPS www.comingbox.net slash review and we'll have those links there. And uh, one star reviews are also fine. So next what <laughs> it was all going well <laughs> you know i had to, i can't i can't not do it now i know it i don't even like it i th- I thought that was not funny anymore like 20 episodes ago and i just can't stop doing it now it sucks <laughs> all right okay you heard what the man said yeah i i was it i'm like kind of like the whole time scene is like is he feeling okay maybe he needs right. to see a doctor like this sounds pretty normal yeah, he he came around at the end. We're good. All right, yeah. All right, so, uh, well, with that, it's time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right, <clears throat> so, um, what episode is this? 202. So, Jay-Z, you are first. I have a horrible track record with this, by the way. Oh, yeah, Jay-Z, I think, totally crushed you last time. Yes. All right, so... Uh, I'm trying to get my spreadsheets in order so I can like keep track of the scores. All right. So name a place you might not get cell phone reception. Elevator. Elevator. All right. Alan. Parking garage. Parking garage. Wow. Good answer. It those that is a good answer. Uh, so first of all, I'm gonna take the easy one out, out, which was, man, I really I don't know about that one either. I'm kind of confused on how to how to answer both of these. So I think what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you each uh, a win here because elevator isn't technically on there, but work slash office building is, and I'm I'm gonna count that because. I think that I think that makes sense. That's fair, right? I don't yeah. know, man. I was pretty specific about elevator. I feel like, and I feel like elevator should be on there. And I feel like everyone who didn't say that is wrong. <laughs> so I'm willing to take a loss there. Okay, you <laughs> heard talking it. himself out of some points. Hey, I'll take some help. <laughs> that would have been, uh, you know, fairness is my middle name. It would have been thirteen, but you know, hey, what? Well, wait, thirteen? <laughs> thirteen points. I mean, okay, yeah, thirteen's uh, yeah, th- same thing. <laughs> you you want the 13 points yeah for okay. sure okay i thought you might i thought you might all right. all right and then uh parking garage isn't technically in here either but i'm kind of torn because like immediately when you when you said it i was thinking of the type of parking garages that i've used in the past where they were in the basement of the building yeah like concreted toilet. and and <laughs> And basement is on the list. So, well, but then I started thinking about it? like, wait, there, there are like literally, uh, you know, m- probably the majority of parking decks are, you know, a building that you just drive through. And so they're all up, up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. No I'll take a loss. I'll take a loss on this. That's fine. All right. I'm winning. All right. Okay. <laughs> That because that would have been twenty four points. Oh. Where do they find these people? Where do these people live that don't have elevators but do have basements but not parking garages? <laughs> I don't know. Well, but they're killing me. They're killing me slowly here. <clears throat> All right, I'm so pretty good actually. So Alan, you go first for th- for this one. 
<laughs> Name a type of vehicle you really wouldn't want to hit while driving. A dump truck. A dump truck. Whoa. Okay. All right. Uh, I think on a sports car, maybe I should be more specific and say, uh, I don't know, Lamborghini. Okay. So, uh, obviously, Alan is thinking of Back to the Future and says dump truck because he doesn't want all of the manure falling in his car. That's right. <clears throat> dump truck oh, is not on the list. Come on, man. Yeah, Who so are these sorry. people? So, whew, boy, you still want, you sure you don't want those other 24 points? Good God. All right. And uh, Lamborghini uh, for Joe, not on the list. What about a semi? This is really going to irritate me because that was my other Oh, one. you're really going to hate yourself when you hear these answers. Cool bus. Number one, police car, 44 oh. points. Okay. Oh. Number two, fire truck, 16. Number three, ambulance for 15. Then train for 10. A hearse. For six. Now we get specific with Hummer for two points <laughs> and limo with two points. And Man, I forgot. Whatever. I just realized that we didn't go back and call the other ones out. So yeah, we can do that real quick. But yeah. Uh name a place where you might not get cell phone reception. <clears throat> Wilderness slash mountains was number one for twenty-six points. Basement number two, twenty-four, tunnel. 16 points. Oh, that would have been good. Yeah. Boat slash ocean, 14. Work slash office building, 13. School, three. And court, two. <laughs> Courts. <laughs> what? Yeah. They'll call you in contempt. You do that. Yeah. So uh, maybe it's a place where you don't want to get a cell phone reception. Right. All right. So, uh, Joe, you have a commanding lead here with 13 points. <laughs> Kind of, kind of. So pick a number between one and three, and uh, I'll let that be the next question. Uh, One. One. All right. So, oh, you're going to love this question. I don't know that I am. At your... (laughs) Dear boss, if you're listening, now would be a time to not. (laughs) At, (laughs) At your job, out of the 60 minutes in each hour... How many do you spend doing actual work? Oh, wait, is this, are we asking me or are we asking what people say? <laughs> Technically, yes. we're supposed to say what the people would say. Okay. And now and we've established already, these aren't real people. These are, this is like Chrissy Teigen, you know, uh, Chrissy Judge. Or what's the name of the show? You ever watch that? It's amazing. Uh, no, no idea. Chrissy's court is what it is. Uh, anyway, it's amazing. Uh, that's, but those are the people that they're asking the people in there to be judged. Um, but anyway, um, five minutes. I have no idea what you're talking about. There's no way. No way. All right. So five minutes is what he said. I want to say 45, 45 minutes. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Man, I better better get some points on this. Come on. Chrissy's court. Joe says, uh, five minutes. Hour. Five minutes okay. is not on the list, so that's a zero there. Alan says forty-five minutes. Number one answer, thirty points. Alan takes the steal. Yes, sir. Wow. <laughs> yep. Uh, forty-five had thirty answers. Thirty minutes had twenty-three. Fifty was third answer at sixteen. 
the fourth answer <laughs> was they spend all 60 minutes of it doing actual work for 12. <laughs> they work at Amazon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They've got trackers in their brain. Yeah. They, then uh, zero minutes. They work with us. Uh, six minutes. Or no, I'm sorry. Six respondents. Uh, 15 was next. What was that number? Was that uh, seven? No, six. Uh, six. 15 was the sixth answer with five respondents. And seventh answer was 10 minutes with four respondents. Wow, well, you try to say all those numbers and like they make sense and say them in a meaningful right. way. That, that gets complicated. That was almost like us talking about graph, um, you know, algorithms <laughs> with nodes and lines and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Here are the questions. Wait, do meetings count? Do we figure that out? I <laughs> meeting counts as work. That counts I got to change my answer now. Hold oh, on. no, 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 no. That doesn't count. Uh, by the way, the questions you left behind, Joe, name something you never leave home without was one of the questions. Phone. And the other question, phone was number one answer. You should have picked that Dang one. Dang it. Um, no, the next question was, how long does a typical New Year's resolution last? <laughs> one day. <laughs> yeah. So Mr. Pessimistic Allen says one day, but those, those were the other, uh, the other questions. So, yeah. Excellent. I won. Yeah. Hey, look at that. Even with Cheater McCheaterton up there picking 13 points up in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Don't That's call true. out a comeback. That's right. So, yeah. I'm so disappointed in the world right now. I mean, between these answers, and yeah, I just looked on IMDb for the link for Chrissy's, uh, Chrissy's Court. It's got three stars out of ten. I've never <laughs> heard of this show. What is this show? She said it's amazing. I mean, it's is amazing. Is what he said. It's amazing. It's like Judge Duty, but Chrissy Teigen. So, like, these people come in, they've got a problem where, like, the roommate, uh, you know, ate too much uh, mayonnaise or something and, like, wants to be reimbursed, and the other person doesn't want to pay because they're fantastic. And I mean, there you go. There's that. Oh, it's a right Roku original. How about that? Oh, well, that's yeah, why it only has three amazing. people, three reviews. No. no, no <laughs> Roku's no, no. great. Don't get it twisted. It didn't Team, say three Ro- reviews. Team Roku over here. It's got a three star. All right. <laughs> uh, that's pretty amazing. My, pe- my people, if you're a fan of Chrissy's Court, let me know in the comments. You might want to never heard of it. All right. I'm going to have to check it out now. I'd never heard it. I, I'd never heard of it, but I won't be able to check it out. <laughs> Her mom is the bailiff. Dude, it cannot be good, Jay Z. Like seriously, two hundred sixty-four people have rated this a three point two out of ten. That's like, all that, of the viewers. That's abysmal. I mean, I, we heard the answers <laughs> on the show, right? Where was dump truck? Huh? Where was semi? I agree. I agree. Yeah. Hummer, give me a break. Get out of here, Hummer. Well, you're never going to catch the Lamborghini to hit it. Mm. But, but then, do, but the but it was. But you say that though, uh, and I know Alan might remember this, maybe. But uh, you remember Tracy Morgan? You remember him from uh, Thirty Rock, for example? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so he bought a. There was a story like this was years ago where he had bought a Bugatti, and as he was pulling out of the dealership, a Honda hit him. Oh, <laughs> this was man. in this was in Manhattan. And as he was pulling out, he got hit. Oh, <laughs> and it, it wasn't his fault too. Like they, they, the article I remember the, reading at the time, they were talking about how it wasn't his fault. But you know, yeah, it was like awful. A Bugatti. That's that's man, I, I'd vomit. But <laughs> yeah. but even worse though, you've seen the maintenance on those things. I, Outlaw and I love cars. Oh god. 
An oil change on a Bugatti is over twenty grand. <laughs> well, you have to replace the tires every year, and that's like fifty thousand dollars. And uh-huh. and when I searched that, that was years ago. So like, who uh-huh. knows what it is now? They Those tires were specially made for that car. Yeah, the maintenance on that car is a hundred thousand dollars a year. That is, oh man, it's <laughs> insane. All right, oh uh, man, there's so many ac- there's so many stories about this accident. Um. I, I will include a link to it, but yeah, this was actually newer than I thought it was because this article says uh, 2019. I was thinking it was long, much longer than that. That's that's brutal. <clears throat> All right. So while he's putting that in there, let's talk about the concepts of a transaction. So as we spoke about earlier, most relational databases, I say most, they're usually done in relational databases. I don't know if most do. I think that may be a... Um, an assumption. I don't know. <clears throat> Some non-relational databases support transactions. Um, I think that new SQL link that we have for Wikipedia has several of them on there. So, um, probably worth checking those out just, just to sort of see what's out there. Um, so this is where they actually said in the book, the general idea of a transaction has been around mostly unchanged for 40 years. Originally introduced in IBM System R, which I've never even heard of prior to this statement, and it was the very first relational database. Shocking that I'd never heard of that, being that I've been doing RDBMSs for so long, but yeah, whatever. Um, so when... Things started going to NoSQL databases, which means basically non-relational databases. They kind of just left transactions out because their whole point was the scale, right? And they didn't want to deal with that problem. So um, Outlaw mentioned DynamoDB earlier. Um, You got things like Cassandra. You got, um, man, I I really can't think right now. There's tons of them. Uh, Like other... uh no document databases. databases. Yeah, document databases. Mongo one. Yeah, Mongo. Like how did Mongo not come to mind? I don't know, man. My brain completely went blank on that for a second. Um. So yeah, they they kind of were just like, hey, we're not going to deal with it. Um. Elastic. And, would you count Elastic as a document database? No, it's it's a search index. Um. Well, I mean, I, I they think, all are indexes, right? It's just a matter of like what their use case is for. But at the end yeah. of the day, it's written in a document type format, not a relational format. Yeah, it's stored yeah. in the whole document, and it's got the secondary indexes kind of off off site. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I consider it a database. I consider it a search engine, but I, I don't know. Um, so what's interesting is they did call out that in some NoSQL implementations, they sort of changed what a transaction meant so that they could sort of say that they had it, but they had weaker sets of guarantees wrapped around them. Um, And this was something that I really liked that they called out in this book is a popular belief that was kind of put out there was you can't have transactions because transactions means that you can't scale. Right. And that was, that was sort of, I, I even remember when NoSQL implementations were getting as popular as they were. That was sort of the thing that, database like traditional relational database people would be like well it's not transactions <laughs> it's not real right it's not a legit thing if you can't wrap it in a transaction and that was the the pushback right 
Oh, you have transactions you can't scale. Oh, you don't have transactions? Well, you're not a real business um, application database, right? Like you can't do anything real with that. And and the book basically calls both of these hyperbole, right? It's complete nonsense. You can do both in either situation and there are trade-offs in both. And that's that's really what it all boils down to. It's always that. That's kind of been one big takeaway uh, from the book for me. And we've talked about it several times. It's just uh, how a lot of times uh, you need multiple databases. And Elasticsearch is a great example. Fantastic for search. Awesome. If you're running a large e-commerce website, you should have a search engine for sure. Super fast to find things. It's great. You should not use it as your uh, primary source of uh, you know record, whatever you want to call it. Um, for inventory <laughs> or price because of the lack of transactions and things like that. And so you, you typically will have some sort of relational database or some sort of other like primary store of data that's the authority for things like inventory and stuff like that that needs to be, you know, like for real. And sometimes that means that customers buy stuff that has just sold out. And that's something that you got to deal with. And, you know, you can either try to prevent that at checkout by checking the, the true inventory or you can just deal with some margin of error. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate here. Okay, so if Elasticsearch is not considered a database, then I ask you, why is it on dbengines.com? Oh, case closed. It's a database. It is up there, but I think they actually label it as a search engine. Well, they talk about the different types of databases. So like there's relational document key value and search engine is a type of database. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That, so. that'd be, I mean, I guess technically the, the whole term database is it's a place where you store data, right? So that's why I was uh, saying like they're all indexes yeah, at some yeah, point. Yeah. It's a database. Um, not in the traditional sense, but it, but I guess you could say that about key value pair stores and all that as well. So, yeah, I think technically it's the LSM. It's, it does the whole like kind of log based, you know, whatever. Um, I forget what it says for log structured merge, something like that. But anyway, it's uh, yeah, it's good for some things, bad for others. Um, consistency, not so great. Transactions, right. nope. Yep. Hey, I want I want to mention something too because it's come up lately, and it's actually it drives me insane every time I hear it. Um. And I think this book is is sort of what changed my mind Can I on this. It's pronounced mommy. 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 No, mommy. <laughs> just um, kidding. Go ahead. So what Jay-Z just said is super important. It is okay to duplicate data oh. in different systems if you are serving a purpose that, that that system solves right so for instance he just he just made a perfect example right um i wrote an article a long time ago on coding blocks and it was super popular it's actually one of our more popular articles and it was talking about because it's one of the only articles <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny uh, it might be uh, uh, but it was talking about creating a database schema for storing a product catalog in an e-commerce thing right and and when I went through and I wrote that article, like I, I laid out the schema and was talking about like the entity attribute values and all that kind of stuff and, and what it's good at and what it's bad at, right? Like it's really good at adding new products to, to the system. But what it's really bad at is if you're trying to select information out, like, Hey, I want to find products that are blue or whatever, because you got to do a ton of joins and all kinds of things. Well, this is a perfect example of, Hey, it might make sense to put that into a database so that you have a nice way to edit data and products that you want to be in your catalog. But 
you certainly do not want people searching your SQL database for those products on a live site or application that belongs in a search engine. It is not wrong to move that data from one place to another to solve those different problems, right? One is for an admin interface. One is for a search engine. It's not wrong. If you have needs for analytics, it's not wrong to then move that data into Druid or Pinot or something like that. If you need a data lake so that you can do analysis over long trends of data, it is not wrong to throw that data in an S3 bucket and use it that way. So I view it as an extension of uncle Bob's, you know, uh, what did he refer to it as like true duplication and accidental duplication? Yes. You know, if the data, if you need, if you have like one system, that's the source of truth, you know, the system of record for the data, and maybe that's in a relational database, but then, you know, to your example, you have the products in a search engine and, you know, that's just coincidental. It's just accidentally that you have it in both places, but you know, they're serving different purposes, right? Like it's not, it's not true. Uh, a true copy at that point. But if you basically had the exact same data in one data store that you consider like your system of record and it's say SQL server, and then you have another one that's Oracle and it's the exact same data and another one that's Postgres and it's the exact same data. Like why? Right. Like at that that point, that point that's like true duplication that you got to figure out like, wait, why are you doing this? Although, you know what I find ironic behind this? And this has always driven me insane. People that have dealt with data warehousing for years, they're, they're accustomed to taking data and pushing it out to like little data marts, right? Because, um, you know, accounting needs a copy of this data and it needs to be fast and it needs to be true for accounting. And then customer service needs their copy of this data. Right. And so, I don't know what it is, this this desire not to copy data into multiple different types of systems, but it's okay to put it into multiple databases that could be used by different um, departments or customers. I don't understand it, but just just know that if you hear somebody pushing back about, oh, well, we've already got this data over here. I don't want it over there. It's like, okay, well, is there a good reason to put it over there? If you have a business reason for putting it into a search engine, then that's not duplicating the data. And and this is another thing I want to bring up that, that drove me crazy too, is people have no problems putting multiple indexes on a database table. That is copying the data. When you create an index on a database table, it makes another copy of the data and source it a particular way so that you can get fast searches. So if you have 10 indexes on the table, you now have potentially 10 copies of data and pointers to data and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's, that's how you solve a lot of hard problems is you move data into different formats that can be used in different ways. So, um, all right, I'm off my soapbox now. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was thinking just continue your soapbox for a moment though. Like we've talked about the, um, Uber engineering blog and I was trying to find an example of it, uh, as, as you were describing, but, um, I know that I've read some of their blog entries where like they've talked about, uh, They've actually like, they'll show you pictures of like, here's how we're moving data around. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like that example of accidental duplication because 
yeah, technically they're copying data off to multiple little places, whether it be, you know, you want to call it a data mart versus just, you know, a specific database for whatever its purpose is. But, you know, they have a specific need for that data over in the other place. And so not everything is going back to some giant data lake, you know, because uh, the problem that I have with that is that like, if you try to engineer some one database to rule them all for your entire enterprise to, to do all of your, your use cases like that is so unrealistic. It doesn't work. It doesn't exist. Depends on your org size. I mean, if you've got three developers, you don't want to have like 10 different databases, right? But if totally. you had three developers, would you be considered an enterprise? Like, right. No, no. Right. Sure. But, but in fairness though, Jay-Z, if, even if you had three developers and you're creating your own, you know, storefront, would you run it all through a SQL database? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you can make it a, a case for using as much open source software and like kind of outsourcing as much of that stuff so you don't have to build it yourself. Not even talking about yeah. that. But I mean, what I'm saying is a lot of people, at least traditionally, would start up with an RDBMS and then, and then they're like, okay, well, I want, I want to search for products on my site. Do you yeah. just tie into the RDBMS, which is now going to like really start crushing it because now you're competing with transactions for search, right? Yeah. So stand up an Elasticsearch or, or whatever and put it over there because you are serving the purpose of what, what's supposed to be there. So Yeah, I don't want to spend my limited resources. I mean, we've got three developers. I don't want two of them working on recreating a search engine, right? Right. For who knows how long and, yeah, limping along and missing all the fancy features I haven't even thought about yet. Or, or trying to support a relational database that's falling over because there's too much traffic hitting it for, you know, 20 different needs. So... Yeah. I found one of the examples of the uh, articles I was referring to where they had like uh, they're showing database coming from like relational database and key value databases and cough. It's some of it's in Kafka and then, you know, yeah. So <sighs> then they put it off into like, you know, another format that they had written. Man, I really love their, their blogs on Uber. Their engineering yeah. blogs were amazing. Yeah, yeah, and trying to find that article, I'm like, ooh, I'm behind. <laughs> right? <laughs> all right, all right. So who's going to pick up on this next piece here? Uh, me. I can do it. Uh, so ACID. We've talked about ACID a few times on the show before. Uh, it's an acronym basically standing for Atomicity. Oh, no. You know what I'm trying to say, right? Atomicity. <laughs> Tell me who the reviews are by. Go ahead. Oh, no, I can't do it. it. There's a reason that you do it. Uh, Atomicity, consistency, isolation, durability. And we'll go over those a little bit, uh, you know, each at a time. But it's a very old term that's stuck around for a very long time. And it's got, you know, definitions. The problem is that uh, the different databases kind of adhere differently to those interpretations and those definitions and kind of – so it doesn't really mean as much. If I tell you I have a, you know, my my database is – acid compliant you know it doesn't really tell you a whole lot you, you get an impression you know it's more than nothing but it's uh it's a marketing it's term it's right. absolutely that's a great way to put it yeah yeah and uh in, you know some letters are worse than others uh in terms of being uh, kind of ambiguous and some are um, you can almost kind of take for granted nowadays but uh we'll get into them but yeah. uh, the op oh go ahead no go ahead 
Uh, I was going to get into BASE, which is uh, another acronym that originally started kicking around when people started talking about kind of NoSQL and getting away and kind of saying, you know, maybe we don't need ACID. Maybe we could, you know, not care so much about isolation. Maybe we don't care as much about atomicity and we we want the things, we want to trade these for other things. So they started referring to this term BASE, uh, standing for basically uh, basically available, soft state, and eventual, <laughs> eventual consistency. But the author makes the point that the term is basically garbage and that all it really means is not that acid. So it's kind of like a watered down version of a definition based on an already kind of vague definition for acid. So all it really means is not very acidic. Yeah. So um, I'm going to help you out here. We'll, we'll start with Adam I city. Nice. <laughs> That's how you do it. That's right. Uh, the one thing about this, this, this term always threw me. Um, so at, at the, um, the definition of it is something that cannot be broken into smaller parts, but the author actually made a point of like that. Maybe it should have been abortability. It would have been a better definition for a in in acid. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, so. um, so, you know, we talked about like how things would work at kind of like a file level. You can imagine like one way to kind of deal with like um, multiple, you know, reads and writes to the different locations of the file is that you have multiple readers that have handles in the file and you got one writer and somebody tells the writer, hey, okay, go make a change here. And if the, the readers don't pause, if they still got a, you know, a, they're not locked out. There's nothing preventing them. They could actually manage to read this as it's being written. So um, the file is being written to from some sort of buffer uh, that's being shared by these readers and writers. And, you know, maybe a part, part of the record gets read before the whole thing is written. And that would be bad in a lot of cases if you're, you've got a database. You know, you imagine you're placing an order or something and the, the quantity got decremented before the, uh, you know, before the payment got taken or whatever. And that would be really bad. But another way to do that would be to say, let's write the data to a different location and then change the pointer to it. All right. Oh, here, here you go. Here's an even better um, example. If you're like writing code, have you ever done this where you are maybe like iterating through an object and mutating the state of it, which is already kind of a no-no, and you change the first name field on the object, and then you change the last name on the object, and then some sort of uh, exit condition happens and you you know end up reporting that thing, but it's only been partially modified. And maybe something, um, you know, picks up on that and the whole object has been mutated, right? Because you're modifying that thing in place. It was passed by, you know, reference or whatever, but it didn't, the operation didn't complete. So it's in an inconsistent state, you know, bad news. A better way to do that sort of thing is to basically create a new point of the object, make any changes or, you know, make a copy of that object, make your changes over there and then return the new object and do a wholesale swap so that everything is done correctly and it either happens completely or atomically or not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think we talked about something similar to that example in uh, one of the clean code discussions where like, you know, why as reasons why you should not modify uh, inputs to whatever your function or method is, you know, but as it relates to this, that's a great example of, you know, why. 
Yeah. And like, I don't run into like situations like that with code very often anymore. Cause I, I've kind of gotten away from doing a lot of things that lead to it. Like for example, like global shared state is like a classic way where that sort of thing happens where there's some memory that's shared by a bunch of different processes or different readers and part of it gets modified and it gets messed up or aborted and you didn't undo that particular change to it. And yeah, bad stuff happens. Yeah. So it, I don't know if it builds on that, but along these same lines with, uh, atomicity, is or atomic city see it's it, tough right adam i city adam i city yeah At- atomicity atomic atomicity um <laughs> so they call out in, in terms of multi-threaded programming what they wanted to say is when it can't be broken into smaller parts is like if you had two processes trying to access the same data, they could never see it in a bad state right they can only see it before the operation and after the operation so that's kind of what they were talking about. It can't be broken down in smaller parts. So there's no in-between state like what Jay-Z was just talking about, where you could have something not in a proper state. Um, they also say that in, in the database world with ACID, um, atomicity has nothing to do with concurrency. Um, they don't care about if there are multiple processes trying to write to a piece of data that's covered under isolation. That's a totally separate part of the acid um, description. Um, It does talk about what should happen if there's a fault when performing multiple writes, that's where the atomicity happens. Um, And then what do they have here? Oh yeah. This is just going back to the, Hey, if everything happened properly, commit it. If it didn't, then roll it back. Right? Like that's, that is the atomicity on this whole thing. Um, and without having that, it's hard to know when it actually completed or when it failed. So this is sort of the guarantee that, that your state is complete. I mean, this is why I really like, um, <coughs> Joe's example that he gave. Cause even though it's not necessarily a database, you, it, it, really illustrates the point that if you are mutating that object in place and you failed for whatever reason and aborted, then how does the caller know which properties you have updated? You know, then it's on the caller, right? Yeah. Know all that. It'd have to know what was the state before and what is it now? And is it proper? Is it what I thought it should be? So, so it'd be really complex for it to, to do that. I mean, it basically had to keep like a copy of it's of a before, and then here, you know, when, when I get it back, let me, do I need to revert back? Which seems kind of a, seems kind of wasteful for the caller to have to do. Um, so yeah, so without, if without Adam, I city, <laughs> then you wouldn't know like what, what was changed and what wasn't, you know, I mean, you know, if it's up to the caller too to explicitly roll it back, you can imagine like, what if the problem was that the database got cut off from the rest of the network? And so it can't communicate back to the client to tell it that there was some sort of problem, right? So now it's like the database has to decide how long to hold on to that or else it's, you know, how do you pick that back up? Yeah. And like we talked about at the beginning of this, like I've been pretty impressed with databases in general, right? Like they seem to be pretty, pretty foundationally solid in terms of just working. right? Yeah. So, um, and, and they finished this up with saying atomicity is all about getting rid of any rights after an abort so that you don't have to think about it, right? Like that is, that is the primary goal of this thing. Do we already say though about the benefit of it? Like you don't have to figure out the special logic. You can just retry it. 
if it failed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we didn't. Maybe I think we said it earlier in that way. episode. Yeah. Right. We didn't say it, but it is really great. Yep. All right. Who's who's taking consistency? Uh, I got it. Uh, so consistency, that's the CN acid. Uh, just bas- basically means that the, the database is in a good, consistent state. Uh, it's a property of the application. Um, I don't know what the next sentence means, so I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> so, well, okay, dude. I could, I could say this because they were the what the author was saying was that consistency really had nothing to do with the database. What does consistency mean for your data? Okay, it, yeah, it, it's like it it doesn't it's meaningless, right? Like you 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 changed the um. Okay, let's go back to the bank ledger transactions, right? You know, if you if you've decremented the account. Right, like, how do you know that it being maybe it should never be a, a negative number for where like you have some special bank account? Um, you know, maybe it's like a child's bank account that you know because of limitations, it's not allowed to go negative or something. I don't know, but um, you know, so consistency in that regard, like that's all about the application's use case to say like the number the the value can't can't ever be negative, right? It has nothing to do with the the database itself. Yeah, so so the sentence that Jay-Z didn't want to read that I almost didn't put in from the notes because I also, I was like scratching my head like, what? It, it's what defines the invariance for its operations. And so what Outlaw just said is it's basically the rules around what the data is allowed to be, right? That's That's sort of it in a nutshell. Yeah. So the rules of your application. So we mentioned like, you know, the bank account example is that there should be, uh, you know, everything should be balanced. If there was a debit, there should be a credit somewhere else. And everything should always, you add them up back together at zero. And if not, boom, you're in a bad state. You are inconsistent. Uh, like Outlaw said with the, uh, the example of a, a bank account that's never allowed to go to below zero. If somehow it ends up below zero, boom, right? It's, it's in a, in a legal state. It's in a bad state. The whole application is bad. So, you know, I, I can tend to think of kind of consistency as being uh, defined as being like the, the same across all nodes. Cause that's something we talked about a little bit with like eventually, eventually consistent databases. Um, but well, that's really not what we're talking about here. Well, yeah, because that, that got into um, the, the author calls that out, that one specifically out as replica consistency. Yeah. So that's where like, you know, this, this consistency here is not getting to that level of granularity. No. Um, so what you said about like the negative balances and all that kind of stuff, that is the invariant that you as a developer have to enforce, right? So you have to make sure that when you write your, your code, these transactions make sure that things happen completely, but it's up to your code to make sure that things don't end in a bad state. I, I mean, let, let, let's continue on with, um, Joe's balance sheet example, right? Where like, you know, for every, for every, uh, you know, for there to be debits, there had to be credits, you know, and there, everything's supposed to equal out right. Um, to zero. I think that's how accounting works. Um, you know, the, the, the author calls out here that consistency as it relates to acid refers to an application specific notion of the database being in a quote good state. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with the database system itself. Like Microsoft SQL server will happily store whatever data it wants to store, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your application is happy with what's in it. And so that's where the consistency here was weird. Yeah. So they call it out here in a second, but, but one thing that they did mention in the relational database to where, um, 
the database can help you keep things consistent is if you're using foreign keys, right? So it knows that one of the invariants in the system is you can't use a key in one table that's a foreign key to another table if that key doesn't exist, right? So it can stop that right from happening because it's like, hey, you tried to use ID 10 over here, but it doesn't exist. So it can force that from a relational database standpoint, but it can't force your credits and your debits because it doesn't know about them. It doesn't care about them, right? That's on your application. And then they called it out explicitly and said, for that reason alone, the fact that all this logic is on the application, the C shouldn't even belong in ACID for database purposes. So it should just be aid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, so here I'm going to, I get to use my second tangent card of the night. If I could redeem that. Thank you. All right. So, you brought up foreign keys as an example here, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but as great as they might be, true or false, there are definitely legit use cases where you might decide to scrap all your foreign keys. Man, that's such a tough statement to make. <laughs> because then... Are you working? Oh man. Yes. <laughs> there are situations, right? But are you truly working with real relational data? If you can scrap the foreign keys or is it eventually relational is kind of what you're getting at in some situations, right? Like, Hey, I know I'm going to end up writing these things and eventually that key will exist in both spots. Um, but it's not right now. Well, if you think about it, right? Like if you put that foreign key on there, on that table, then you're introducing a constraint, which means that some overhead is being spent to l- ensure that that thing exists. Totally. Right. And so you're, you're taking a hit on that. So yes. depending on what your performance needs are, you might not want, you not, you might not be willing to take that hit. And to your point, like maybe it will become eventually correct. You know, like, especially like if you were to think of a system where like, um, I'm trying batch to give a good example data. here, but batch loading data is a, is a great example of when you have it, when you're, when you're batch pulling something over from one system into another and you're filling up tables, right. And you don't necessarily want to do it in order. You want to do it in parallel. That is one situation where that can totally be an issue. Well, I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking of like, um, ex- it doesn't have to necessarily be large batch kinds of amounts of data. It could just be because of the cloud world that we live in now, the large networking world that we live in now, you could get data out of order. Mm, and so maybe yep. maybe you get um let me think of a good example here. May, maybe you get a uh not an order. I don't want to talk about orders. Let's talk about like y- you get uh, like if this was a graph network kind of thing, maybe, um, and don't get too hung up on the graph part of this, but you know, Alan's contacts, right? So you're going to store Joe as, as being associated to Alan, but yet you haven't yet gotten Alan yet. So you don't know anything about him. So how can you foreign key to Alan yet? But you eventually will. It's right. just that the data came in out of order. Right. And so you don't want to fail the whole process for that. You know that it'll eventually work itself out. And oh, by the way, you could trivially write scripts to say, you know, uh, to write, you could trivially write code that could do cleanup on some period, 
periodic basis to say, Hey, do I have any cases of like, uh, where somebody is associated to someone else that doesn't yet exist in the system? Let me either remove that record in the, in this, in this example, it would be you remove, you're finding Joe's record and removing his record because, you know, he's a contact of Alan, but Alan doesn't exist in the system. Right. So, I mean, th- there are, there are reasons why you might want to uh, avoid it. So I say all that because I wouldn't, t- so that uh, I say all that so that we don't get hung up on foreign keys as the like go to reference, you know, the canonical reference for consistency and what consistency means in a database because it, it doesn't have to be. No, I think I think the only reason they included it is because if you do have a foreign key, it's like you said, it automatically puts a constraint on those two tables or, or on the table that the foreign key is defined on. And so if you try to put something in there that's, that doesn't have a key in that primary table, then it will force the invariant on you, which is you can't have a record here that doesn't have a related record over here, right? So it's it's like one of the only things that, I mean, unique constraints are another one, but there's not a ton of things that the database can automatically force into an invariant for you. Yeah, but but uh, not to belabor this point too much, but not everything is going to be a foreign key. So going back to Joe's ledger example or balance sheet example, you know, you're not going to have a foreign key to every dollar amount, right? What if you did? How weird would that be? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get into the I of acid, which uh, we've already hinted at before, which is isolation. And isolation is all about handling concurrency problems or race conditions. So this is going back to, we kind of hinted at this when we talked about it um, out of my city. I'm, I'm definitely saying that correct. <laughs> uh, where where we were talking about like, you know, multiple processes that might be trying to read the um, the same piece of data. Yeah, and so uh, an example here would be like two different clients trying to increment a column. So when you say increment, we mean basically it reads the value out of it, say the number 99, and it uh, updates it by 1 to 100. And you imagine two clients trying to do this at the same time. Both of them read 99. One of them updates to 100. The next one comes in, updates to 100 again. That would be bad. Those changes weren't isolated, right? What should have happened is one should have gone first and the other should have gone second. And that takes some brains, right? Something has to notice that changes are coming to the same thing and say, wait a second for one of these to finish. And that would be an example of a, a database that supported good isolation. Yeah. I think in the, in the, this part of the book, they gave a very similar example with like the use two users read and they actually show like, uh, visually, you know, like what it would look like, uh, you know, with lines drawn, it was very complicated drawing. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't complicated, but, um, you know, it visualized the whole thing that you were just describing. And so isolation is, is a means of trying to like prevent that, uh, so that that type of situation can't happen. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, that diagram in the back, uh, remind me of sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I know it's a totally different situation, but it's just, there's something about the, the, the actual diagram itself. But anyway, are you are you referring to sock shoe sock shoe? No, yeah. that's that's incorrect. Um, the way he said it was the correct way. Well, know you know, Dave looked it up in uh, uh, super good. Dave looked it up in uh, ChatGPT, and we have a definitive answer with a great explanation on why. <laughs> no, I, you already lost me. ChatGPT was your answer. Then, like, I know that it can't be trusted. <laughs> 
I wonder amazing. if you'd have chat GPT write you a good resume <laughs> yeah. and then you go shop that around. I bet. I've heard yeah. people you like using write tests and stuff like write me a test on a uh, colonial war or whatever, you know, and like 20, 25 questions and bloop. It's unreal, man. And then the kids just take that and they put the, each question in and get the answer and bloop. And then chat GPT grades it. Bloop. And then what are we doing this for again? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so on this isolation thing, the book actually didn't deep dive onto this because they're going to go into it further and later, later sections like weak isolation levels and all kinds of other stuff. So, um, but yeah, I mean, what, what outlaw said is you kind of have to isolate them. They did say though, that, you know, one approach could be, you take the serial approach. And so one, one request comes in, you increment that number and then serially you take the other request that came in and you make it piggyback on the first one. The problem is you get into some real performance hits when you try and start, um, synchronizing all that stuff and, and doing it serially. So, um, and, you know, the, the book also mentioned, uh, atomic operations here. So like, that's an, an example in a database, like as if imagine if the database had a call called increment that took care of reading the value and incrementing by one, all in one single operation. So that nothing could ever kind of get in between those steps. I mentioned like CPUs having instructions that do that sort of thing too, to prevent the kind of problems you can imagine where you're like, you don't want something being in an inconsistent state. And so it lumps kind of a couple steps together for you. Turns them into one. So the last one, the D here, is for Duracell. I meant durability. I said it right. Nothing outlasts. <laughs> so uh, durability, just meaning that that once the database has committed a write, the data will not be forgotten, even if there's a later a database failure uh, or you know hardware asterisk. You know, put an asterisk on that. But hardware failures occur, and what I mean is like you know if there's if there's problems with whatever medium you write to, then, you know, all bets can be off there. But, um, yeah, so this, this is basically just meaning like you've committed it. It's guaranteed that if you started that database up again, you'd be able to read that same value back out. Uh, so this is easier. This, this notion of durability typically means in a single node database that the database has been written to a drive, that the data has been written to the drive and it's, uh, the same data, is written to the write ahead log or some similar implementation. Um, the, and we've talked about the write ahead log before, but this is to ensure that if there is any data corruption, the database can be rebuilt if necessary by reading back from that log of, you know, transactions that haven't yet been committed to whatever their various pages were. Right. Yep. Um, but in a replicated database, durability means that the data has been written to other nodes. And, and even that one can like really be an asterisk, right? Because that can be an implementation decision, or I should say a configuration decision that you make as part of like whatever your system is. So like if we talk about Kafka, our, our favorite uh, for a moment, like you can, as the producer, decide how do you want your data written? Do you want to just like write it, you know, write and forget fire and forget. And you know, you're just going to trust that it got there. Or do you want to ensure that it got to, you know, every bro, every replicated broker or, you know, so um, that can be an implementation detail. Uh, the, the performance implication here though, is that uh, for the database to guarantee this durable, it must wait for those distributed rights to complete before committing the transaction. Right. So again, going back to our Kafka scenario, if you have five brokers 
and uh, three of them are the replicas for one of your topic partitions or your topic. And uh, you as the producer want to guarantee that your message has been written to every replicated broker before uh, you're willing to consider it done. Then you have to wait on all three of those network um, uh, transactions to happen. Right. So, you know, you're introducing additional network latency and IO there uh, for that particular use case. But if depending on like the mission criticality of your, your system, that might be perfectly valid and you might be perfectly willing to wait for that. Right. But then you could also think of other extreme examples where like, you know, you might only get one shot to send that message. And so you just need to like fire it and trust that it got there. So like, if you were to think about like, uh, maybe a message to Mars Rover, right? Uh, maybe they don't do it this way. They probably don't do it this way, but maybe, maybe they're, you know, their, their window of, of time to be able to like make that connection to, uh, to the Rover is so limited that they might just like, you know, try it and have some kind of, you know, authentication mechanism, to make sure that, you know, it got there complete before it does anything, but you know, they might not be able to wait for like, uh, you know, Hey, we're going to try it three times to make sure you got it kind of scenario. I mean, that's a horrible example. Cause there's only the one Rover, uh, you know, that they're going to send the message to at one time, but you, you understand what I'm saying though. It's like, there's, there's, there's situations where you, you're not going to have a large window. So. Yeah. <laughs> the author also makes the point that that perfect durability doesn't exist in, in second law ther- thermodynamics, right? The entropy, like, uh, <laughs> The, there's nothing you can do to uh, ensure that your data is going to last forever. There's actually a fun article on BBC.com I saw a while back about uh, like what it takes if you really wanted to store something important. Like, uh, so there's like there's several articles like this, but I don't remember if this is the one that um, mentioned this particular example of like uh, people trying to like save information for future generations. So should there be like a nuclear war or something crazy that happens that people are able to kind of find some information and start over again with a like a head start. They talk about like what it takes to actually preserve data for, for example, a thousand years. Uh, he's like, what are you going to put it on a CD? Like who's going to read that? First of all, you know, like second of all, like CDs don't last forever. Hard drives, magnets fail, electrical charges fail, like everything fails. Like what are you going to do? Like carve it into stone? You know, it's like sometimes the prehistoric kind of things work. <laughs> sometimes, some ways, sometimes the old ways are best. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like uh, I remember back when, you know, when CDs first came out, you know, like you just thought like, Oh, I'll be able to write, like I'll be able to archive my stuff here and it'll last forever. Like why would it ever change? Right. It's on this, this piece of medium. And then, you know, later learning about, well, are you talking about a CD that you bought uh, like the, you know, at the, the record store, you know, like sure that one might last for a long time, but none of them are going to, are guaranteed to last forever. And so the, the CDs that you as a consumer were recording onto had a much lower lifespan. Oh, that, a few years. Yeah. That I didn't know. So like yeah. I, I just Googled it cause I was, I was curious to find out what, what some of it was. So for a DVD, a dual layer, right. Uh, writable DVD, it's five to 10 years. Well, actually even for the erasable DVDs, uh, they were also five to 10 years. So, um, you have to go to the, the, 
CDRs, CD, writable CDs with the gold metal layers, those are greater than 100 years of average longevity. And they were called archivable um, CDs, if I remember right. Like, you paid a premium for those things. I don't even know how they, like, make such a, a claim, though, because the CD hasn't even been around that long. So how do you test it? Yeah. But the typical CDs that you would buy, like, you know, you're like, oh, hey, Metallica's got a new album coming out. I want to buy that on CD. Those are 50 to 100 years is the is the average lifespan. Now, why are you buying an LCD? I don't know, man. I mean, like, new cars don't even come with CD players. What are you doing? You want the lossless, man. So now, if you really want your data to last, you have to encode it into your DNA and then pass it on to future generations. That's right. That's right. Um, hey, so the last thing that Outlaw sort of hit on this earlier is putting the asterisk on the hardware failure. If somehow all your all your hardware that your database backups and everything were on got destroyed at once, it doesn't matter what kind of durability plans you got in place. Uh, it's gone. Right. So you can only do so much. And that's why perfect durability does not exist. Yeah. I mean, you could think of it as like, okay, I, I, I have a single database, single node database, and I write it to the hard drive. Oops. But my hard drive failed and it's now unrecoverable. Well, then you've lost that entire database. So you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have a cluster of database. I'm going to have a database cluster. Uh, and it's going to, it's over here in my data warehouse uh, or, you know, n- let me not confuse that term. It's in my, my tech center. And, but now, uh, a tornado came and wiped out the entire tech center. And so your database cluster, all the copies are done. So you're like, okay, we're going to multi-site, you know, back that up. So, uh, you know, here's tech center building one and tech center, uh, building two is, you know, a few miles away, but, uh, you know, Maybe maybe an EMP takes them both out or something like that's the kind of the point is that uh, you you can try to do your best but you can't assume that it, it's that you're going to be able to get perfect durability. Right. That's something um, I read uh, the book like a uh, Bruce Steyer uh, book on security a couple of years ago and he kind of said the same thing. He said there's no such thing as secure. It's a dumb question to even ask if something's secure. Is it secure from what? Like heat death of the universe? Is it secure? Is your system secure from someone barging in with a grenade and, you know, or gun to your head or, uh, you know, from you forgetting the password? Is it secure from, you know, it doesn't, it's a nonsensical question to say, is something secure? Because there's so many different things. It's an infinite universe of things that could go wrong with it. And for how long? I mean, like anything that's secure today, the idea, uh, you know, any encryption you come up with today is going to eventually be weak in time as hardware and and technology progresses. Right. So, you know, we try with like ideas like perfect forward secrecy to like combat against something like that. But yeah, that's all you can do is try. Yep. All right. Well, uh, so we'll have plenty of links uh, to some of the stuff that we talked about in the resources we like section. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. I got another uh, music one for you. Do y'all have instruments that you just hate? Like musical mm-hmm. instruments that you just, every time, I don't know, you hear a banjo or something, you're just like, ugh. Did I, a musical instruments that I own 
or that no. okay just yeah. instruments that like grate on my nerves when you hear yeah. them you're like oh yeah like you why is that, why are nails on a chalkboard a musical instrument i don't understand exactly yeah i can't think of any that i hate okay that's good i mean it's a good thing you know piccolo is kind of high pitched so you know maybe let me give you one but i'll tell you uh one of my deep dark secrets is i had an instrument that i just hated is the saxophone Every really? time I saw a saxophone, really? I heard a saxophone, just the, the the sounds and images I immediately conjure thinking about saxophone. I just hate all of my, you know, ugh, drove me nuts. So not a Kenny G fan. Well, he played the, all, no, I don't count that one. The, Soprano the or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I'm talking about the one that's like curvy and like. Yeah, ugh. the one that you hold on. Okay. All right, hold on. Sorry. Okay, give me a second. <laughs> and that, yes, that one. Aren't, aren't they all curvy? Not the, the Soprano sax. No. Or, it, yeah. Spanish, yeah, it, it looked like a clarinet, sort of, honestly. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, Kenny G's all right with me. But wow, yeah, the so curvy one is my favorite. <laughs> it's yeah, the see, jazz one. Yeah. That, that's the gross one. That, that's the one I previously thought of as gross. Well, I tell and you, so, I just celebrate his whole catalog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a Michael Bolton reference. <laughs> yeah. what, was, what was the guy from um, Parks and Rec? Um, Rec guy. Oh. He played the saxophone. Um, Parks uh, and Rec, yeah, Ronald. Oh, Ronald oh, yeah, yeah, Swanson. Yeah, Swanson. Yeah, so he played the saxophone. Anyway, so I for years, my entire life, I've just hated the saxophone. Just even seeing it, I'm just like immediately checked out. Well, I stumbled upon a band on Spotify uh, that features uh, in their the last album, at least uh, a lead instrument of saxophone, and I don't hate it. In fact, I love it, and I realize that I've been wrong all this time about the saxophone because actually uh it's it can be pretty great and the band is called the bad plus and they're uh i i don't know they're kind of a fusion man i guess there's some rocky influencers you know like rock and roll ish uh there's some definitely some jazz kind of stuff in there um they're kind of weird um the latest album actually reminds me a little bit of like an instrumental radiohead except instead of tom york it's a saxophone which if you would have told me that a month ago I, I mean, I would just immediately shut my brain off and maybe uh, delete you out of my contacts on my phone or something just for saying that even it was a possibility. But now I've come around. I no longer hate saxophone. Uh, and I think that you should check this out. It's great programming music. It's a little off kilter. It's a little weird. Uh, I don't really know how else to describe it other than to say, you know, maybe kind of like some Radiohead with a saxophone instead of Tom York. But maybe uh, that sounds great to you. I don't know. You should try it. I like it. I actually listened to a little bit of it while while you uh, started talking about it. They, yeah, they are cool, right? they're good. Yeah. So now uh, now my least favorite instrument is the piano because I mean, <laughs> what? That's <laughs> right? like my second favorite. How well, yeah, but that? that's that's the problem. Is it's everyone's second favorite? You know, it's just it's so good at everything. You know, it's just not really fair. <laughs> no, I okay. All the other instruments. Okay, this is gonna be my tip of the week. Then hold on, I, I'm gonna find this. Uh, it's too good. It's too good. Is my problem with it. Uh, like come on uh, make some room it's not fair no cello also too good it sounds too good the cello is one of my very favorite man yeah that's why i can't take it like it there's 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 not many instruments that can like bring out an emotion in you like it just hitting a chord on a cello it's so good 
I'm gonna find it. I'm gonna find it. I haven't stopped finding it yet. Uh, this, so it's kind of like it's got the beauty of like then the singing uh, qualities of like a violin, but it's got those lower pitches too that can really just dig in there. Yeah, they they resonate within you. They're amazing. Okay, I found I found the YouTube channel, and I'm gonna I'll have a link to this, and this is uh, the correction to Jay Z's tip of the week. So there is. <laughs> There is a YouTube channel called Piano Rock, and the uh, the artist, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, but I'm going to say Cristello, maybe, Hello. is how he might, might pronounce more, his name. Some um, but he has a truckload of videos where, like, name any song that is not piano, and he plays a a piano only version of it where he's not only playing like the, the rhythm and the lead instruments of it, but also the vocal parts of it. He's so ridiculously creative and how he's playing it. So he's got videos of him like at, you know, like a mall, right. And playing the piano in the mall. This, this guy, you're going to, you're going to take that back. You're going to take those words back. Jay-Z, you're going to eat those words. You're going to be like, piano is definitely one of the greatest instruments. It's one of the most versatile, one of the greatest. And Michael was right. And I will never doubt him again. That, well, those see, are the words the I want to hear. With it, though. I got to be a contrarian. It's, it's so good. It can do so much and like capture. It's just, too, it's not fair to everyone else. All the other instruments, all the piccolos out there. Well, they all I, think, hate the I think the guitar is extremely uh, versatile too, though. Yeah, I hate that too. I was going to say, I mean, you as a player of it, I mean, it, you've heard of Tommy Emmanuel, right? Yes. You, oh, dude, yes. If you watch that guy play a guitar, you will forever be mesmerized by somebody who can, who can just like master something so well because he uses the guitar as the lead, the rhythm, and the percussion line, and he plays it all at the same time with two hands. It's yeah, that's wrong. incredible, man. Yeah, I, if was, I had to start over again. I would go with bassoon. I I was just <laughs> watching. There was a video of Tommy Emmanuel that popped up uh, just because uh, within like you know recent days, Jeff Beck has passed on, right? And so Tommy Emmanuel, there was a performance that he was doing and he played over the rainbow and dedicated it to Jeff Beck. And I'll have a link to that as well. And it is just phenomenal. Cause even when you hear him starting with it, you're like, where's this going? Like, I don't, I don't recognize this quite at first. And then you hear it and you're like, Oh man, that's so good. How he just did that. Hey, so just so you know, he does tour around and he's come to Atlanta several times. I've seen him twice. It absolutely go to it. It's, it is jaw dropping stuff. This was a, this was at a recent show, by the way, the, the, the video them that I'm talking about, this is just days old. Um, obviously that's how he was able to dedicate it. Right. right. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so I think our takeaway there is that, uh, Jay-Z is wrong. <laughs> Huh. That was weird though. As a tip of the week. All right. It's never happened before. Weird. (laughs) Yeah. So, so my tip of the week, other than being correct is, uh, so I don't know how I never discovered this command before, but now that it is in my arsenal, I will be forever amazing at all things Docker. So the command is Docker builder. 
And specifically why I needed this was you can pass in another, uh, you know, command. So Docker space builder space, and then whatever the command is. And in this case, I wanted to use prune so that I could prune all of the builder cache that I had. So here's, here's the way my use case worked. Uh, we've, we've talked about Kubernetes many times. We've talked about our love of Minikube many times. So, uh, when you're using Minikube as your local Kubernetes cluster, you're spinning up a VM to house that Minikube, I'm sorry, to house that, uh, Kubernetes cluster. And, you know, the beauty of that is that with Minikube, it allows you to, from the command line, just super simple, spin up a different Kubernetes cluster at a different version of Kubernetes using different drivers, be it Docker or Parallels or Hyperkit or whatever, or, or even no driver, uh, at, to, to, um, to run that, that cluster under, right? But the problem that I was facing is that, uh, you know, you also give it a size for like, this is the amount of CPU, here's the amount of memory, and here's the amount of disk space. And <clears throat> I was trying to wrap up a, uh, some, some code for a feature that I've been working on. And I, in my Kubernetes, in my local Kubernetes cluster that I was deving against, I already had a good amount of data throughout all of the, you know, this orchestrated system. And I didn't want to lose the data in any of it. Right. And, but at this point, the 150 gigs that I had associated to my mini cube VM was starting to, to, you know, get sparse. Like I, it was getting to the point to where to do a, a Docker build of all the different images and, or let's face it, because we were—I was using Scaffold, which is another thing that we've shared our love of of before too, as it relates to all things Kubernetes. So I was using Scaffold to do the the builds, which under the covers is calling Docker build. But um, because of the how low my space was getting, in order to do the Scaffold builds and or the Scaffold runs, I would literally have to go and in another window start juggling like, okay, which Docker images do I no longer need? RMI those Docker RMI to remove those images. Uh, so I could like prune as I go kind of thing in order to like build up the images that I need and then run it so that I could like wrap the, put a bow on this whole change set. Right. And, uh, what I found was we've talked about the Docker system command. So you could do like a Docker system DF or a Docker system prune as an example of space. Um, and so with Docker system DF, you could see like how much, how much space is being used, um, by the, by like images, containers, volumes, and build cache, and you can prune and there is a filter option. And I'm sure that using the filter option, I could have probably found like where, you know, the, the type equals cache or something. But, uh, you know, I, I was like, uh, I, I, I did. I. I. It was easier to just delete the to delete the images as I as I went, rather than trying. Like I was too. I was being lazy and didn't feel like going to look for the, um, uh, you know what the filter command would have been to use system because with system doc, Docker system prune you can prune 
as much as you want. You can get specific. And, and even as a previous tip of the week, I've talked about how you could give it a date range and, and you could say like from two weeks and, and it, all the different date formats that it'll take because dates are hard. Um, but, uh, you know, so you, so you could say like, Hey, you know, everything that's, that's, you know, with new within the last two weeks, I want to keep, but the older stuff, get rid of, right? Like that's the kind of cool stuff that you can do with Docker system prune, but it's, it is, um, you, what you, what, what I was concerned about was while I'm perfectly willing to get rid of the volume, the, I'm sorry, the, the images, I wanted to make sure that none of the volumes were, were going to be removed because I didn't want to lose any, any data again. That was the whole point of all this, right? So one of that, one of system DF lines though, like I said, is the build cache. So I was like, Oh, how can I delete the build cache? Docker builder prune allows you to prune just the build cache from your Docker system. And in my case, I reclaimed like 70 gig <laughs> from my VM. Right. So disgusting. Like I, I was like, man, how many times have I just been building over and over and over without without realizing it? But yeah, so uh, that that Docker Builder prune, you know, it now now it's in your arsenal too. You can you know use it as you need. Uh, if you aren't already using Kubernetes, um, you know it's fun, it's awesome. You'll love it once you get to it. It's very hard. Uh, so be prepared to like have a, you're basically like deciding to take on every job in the data center as well as every application developer job too, for everything like front end database, all the different technologies. Let me administer all of it as well as become like a networking guru. Like, yeah, but, uh, and with all with YAML, by the way. Yeah, yeah. all with YAML. No big deal. No big uh, deal. And YAML is going to melt your brain at first. You're going to be like, wait, what? All I did was go to a new line. Why is that an array? Um, so, uh, the, uh, the, but yeah, so, so Minikube, Scaffold, these are all great technologies. If you haven't already looked at it, uh, you know, you can. I think I gave another one where, uh, in a, a recent tip of the week where using Minikube, where you could specify, uh, the profile, profile using the dash dash profile. So like you could start multiple, um, mini QVMs. And actually, as it relates to this effort that I was going through, like I was actually taking advantage of that ability with Minikube so that I could keep my, keep my pristine data the way I wanted, but I could, I could build up entire other test clusters in Minikube with, with a different profile name that I could dev against and everything. So, uh, if you're doing mini, if you're doing Kubernetes development and you aren't using Minikube, I would love to know if you have like a, a really good reason like, oh, well, because there's this better product or better uh, platform. So Man, we should do a whole nother episode on this. I actually looked at MicroKates, um, MicroK8S yep. at one point, and it looked very promising and had problems with that. Um, it looked like a good alternative to Minikube, but um, at any rate, I digress. Uh, all right. So mine, funny you mentioned YAML. So, uh, as, as Jay Z mentioned, one of the things that kind of sucks about Kubernetes is a lot of it is you can do JSON. Like you can, you can actually create JSON files, but it seems like YAML is the way that everybody prefers to go. Um, man, I had a YAML on a deployment the other day that I was trying to wrap my head around. And for whatever reason, I mean, when you're looking at indents and dashes and, and 
and all kinds of stuff. Like sometimes it's really hard to visualize exactly what that structure is supposed to be. Um, and, and I find JSON much easier to read because it's all in curly braces. Sure. It's a lot of extra stuff, but it's all grouped off. Right. So I found a plugin for visual studio code and I've got the text in, um, in the show notes here for what you can search for. If you just in visual studio code and you go to the extensions, you can plug in this hillier.yaml dash plus dash JSON. And it will allow you to easily convert back and forth between YAML and JSON. So in the case of what I was doing, I needed to take this deployment file and add another container to it to run it as a sidecar and I could, I just could not figure out where one began and the other one um, should begin. So I just converted it to JSON, made my changes there, and then switched it back to YAML, and it was beautiful. Like it worked perfectly. So um, super easy to do. You access the features through the command palette, or you can just rename the file from .yaml to .json, and it will change it for you, which is super cool. So um, highly recommend that one. It worked out great. And then this last one. So you brought up Spotify and it triggered a memory that I just had recently. So I don't know about you guys. I'm sick to death of all the subscriptions that I have to everything. I've got like a hundred of them to everything. Like I don't even know what I have subscriptions to anymore. Um, Cool. Then I'm going to send you an affiliate link to subscribe to me. <laughs> right. There we go. Oh, um, well paid subscriptions. I don't mind. I don't mind subscribing to coding blocks, right? Like that, that that's free. Um, no, no, no. To subscribe to me. I, I have my own. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you nine ninety nine a month. Yeah, uh, that'll blend in well. Uh, yeah. So, so I had Spotify, I had um, Apple TV, I had Apple Arcade. I paid for some space on Apple for backups, and like I started looking at everything. And I bring this up because I started thinking, like you know, Spotify is. I love Spotify's interface. It's by far the best out there, period. It's the easiest to integrate with home equipment if you want to cast it to a Roku or to a TV or to a sound system. Like they've done it right. And every piece of hardware out there has integrated Spotify's um, protocol, right? So just about anything you buy nowadays, you can play Spotify on. So that's amazing. But I started looking at everything and, and I was interested. Apple Music actually has lossless. So that's one big one that's amazing. And actually their sound quality, I swear to you, if you just listen to the Spotify track and then you go listen to the same track on Apple Music, it sounds better. It's it's definitely a higher fidelity thing. And so and I was like, Spotify you know, Spotify sounds better or the Apple sounds better? No, Apple Apple sounds better. Oh, okay. Um and so I was like, you know what? Let me look into this. And so I started doing some research and it turns out that Apple also pays their artists better. So I'm not going to say people are making a fortune. I want to say it's a penny per play. Something like that is what Apple will pay the artists. Spotify is a fraction of a penny, like a very small fraction of a penny on what they're paying the artists. Well, you know, we're all Swifties here and just saying, you know, Swifty isn't on there. Taylor needs her money. You know, she needs her Spotify plays. She's really not on Apple one. No, I thought she wasn't on, uh, 
Spotify. She, she is she, now. She is oh, now. Oh, she went yeah, back? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. You know yeah. who's still not on any of them is Garth Brooks, which is pretty interesting. Um, I wonder why he's a holdout. I remember Metallica used to be a holdout on a lot of them. Tool but, was as well, but they also are now there. Oh, is Tool on Spotify now? Yeah. I looked not too long ago and I couldn't find them. Yeah, when um, Taylor and Tool and the Beatles went to Spotify, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm signing up now. Yeah, so so here's what I'm going to say here that was interesting. So the thing that Apple pays their artists better, I was like, oh, that's cool. I, I like that, right? Like, uh, I like it that people are going to get paid for what they're doing. And I like the better audio quality. And I found out about this thing called Apple One, to where you can roll a bunch of these services into one and save money. So um, if you use Apple One, I have a link here in the show notes. Um you can get Apple Music. You can get all the Apple News stuff, which is tons of magazine subscriptions and magazine articles and newspapers and all kinds of stuff. You get Apple TV. You get Apple Arcade that can be shared with your family. All of these can be shared with your family um, for like 30, I want to say 32 bucks a month, maybe 34 bucks a month. Well, that's the high end version. That's yeah. the highest end you can get. And I still ended up saving money over what I had on all the various other subscriptions. And I believe I've got a few hundred gigs of space now for backup that comes to boot. Whereas I was paying for like 50, um, you get gigs, hundred, uh, right. Isn't it? I can't remember. I think I only had 50 and it was always complaining at me that I was out of space. Okay, so here I, I've got it now. If okay. so you did the premiere for, yep. I'm going to round up to $33 per month. Okay. That's that two right. terabytes of uh, storage. Yeah. So two terabytes. <laughs> but here's the question that I have with this. Okay. So here's another cool thing for the, for those that don't use Apple or don't know, like, and I don't even know if you knew this, Alan, this is the one of the things that I think is like super kind of like respectful that Apple does is they will tell you, hey, you could actually pay us less money. You could actually save money if you switched to Apple One instead That's of having multiple transactions. Yep. Uh, you know, you could just have the one and save money. But I say that I know that because uh, I keep getting those things and I never do it. So uh, I did. The yeah. reason why I haven't done it though, and I'm and this is my question to you, is is that storage plan per person in your family that's on the plan or is that total because i, I would have guess it's total yeah so okay that's your homework assignment is you find yeah. out if I'll if find out you know are you are you are each of you your family members sharing that storage or if if it's each family member has that storage because then i was like well how does that work if you like already have upgrades for each family member for storage. Yeah. I'm not sure on that. I mean, the interesting thing for me was this allowed me to, so I was planning on upgrading my Spotify to, to a family plan because my kids all now want to listen to music and they're always stealing my, my, my songs. And I'm like, yo, I'm trying to listen in my truck. Quit stealing it from me. Wait, what does that mean? That's a Spotify so, thing. You can steal a session. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, it. so if you were on a single plane, I'd imagine the same thing. Well, I don't guess you'd do it with Apple music cause they wouldn't have access to your account. But on Spotify, if, if you're all logged in as you, if I'm playing it in my living room and then somebody goes downstairs and, and plays a different song, they take over that stream because you only have one plan, like for one individual. Okay. So, so your was wife gonna, was like headbanging to tool. And then you're like, you know what? I'm going to put some Jay Z on right now. Right. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah, totally. 
And so I went, I, I was actually going to upgrade my Spotify. And then I saw the Apple one thing and it was like, Hey, you can save some money. And I was like, all right, let me try it out. And I will say as somebody that has a lot of Apple devices, like my kids have iPads, I have an iPhone works out great for that. I won't say that Apple software is the greatest. Like it does not touch Spotify right? in terms of Apple music. The, the application is nowhere near as good. However, it works on my wife's Android phone and she's able to do basically everything that I can do. She can do on her phone as well with this Apple one subscription. So it works out for families that have mixed Android and iPhone or, or iOS um, Mac users. So I've been pretty impressed with it so far. Um, so, you know, for what it's worth, I actually like the service right now. I've had it for a couple months and and overall pretty happy. Now, here's another thing, too. Um, I don't know. You tell me because I honestly don't know. I, I have been a long time uh, Apple Music, you know, uh, subscriber. But um, you mentioned that Apple had the, the higher fidelity audio and the Apple lossless versus what Spotify offers. Have you also noticed that Apple has the uh, spatial audio, the Dolby Atmos audio? I have. <laughs> they only have a couple of albums, or not a couple albums. No, it's not. They're a very specific on what they have, right? They're, like I think there was a Whitney Houston one that just came out. You, you have to pretty good. There's a lot. In fact, they have they have playlists specific to where you can find it. It's yeah. And some of it is like old stuff too. So it's not, it doesn't necessarily like you mentioned Whitney Houston, right? Like that definitely right. can't be new. The, it, it's, it's not, but, uh, you combine that with like the new AirPod pros. Yeah. I might try the AirPod pros. I just always felt like their value for what they were compared to a lot of things out there. didn't measure up. Um, I, 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 I used to agree with you, man. Uh, but I'm telling you, these they're so amazing. The new AirPod Pros, they they were in my uh, shopping thing, right? And shopping spray. But so so, uh, I don't know if it's like maybe a combination with the uh, the spatial audio, but you could do head tracking mm-hmm. on the on the headphones. Yeah, it's it's That's crazy. pretty cool. But it's also yeah. it's also insane, like how they do the spatial audio with just the headphones. Now I I have listened to the Apple music, the spatial audio, the Dolby Atmos audio. I've listened to it both with the Apple AirPods and in a for real Atmos theater setup. Right. And it is, it's amazing. Like some of the songs that you can hear where like, you'll hear chimes, like go from behind you all the way around you, you know, or whatever. It's just, there's so many cool things, man. I don't know if Spotify has anything like that. No, Spotify is not even close. So that that was one of the things that drove me away is Spotify has been talking about for a long time going to lossless or at least better quality and and it's been on their docket for years and they haven't done it. Um and it was like, man, you, you know what? I'm going to make the change and try it out and and I've been happy with it. Like I said, the audio quality is stellar and you can go full lossless if you want to, but even their AAC recordings are they sound better than the and the best way I can explain it, if you've never actually listened to a lossless sound versus like an MP3 compressed, listen to something like a drum hit or a cymbal hit, and you'll hear the distortion or the smearing of sound if you're using a decent set of headphones 
on like an MP3 compressed versus a flack or a lossless type thing. And it's a similar type effect when you listen to the same songs back to back. I'll give you an example. Um, Three Days Grace, sort of um, uh, like a driven guitar, right? Electric. It's got that crunch to it. It sounds very um, smushed in Spotify. On Apple, it sounds very well defined. And that and and it was super clear when I would listen between the two. And I always felt like Three Days Grace never sounded great on Spotify. And it drove me crazy because I knew that it had sort of like that hard guitar lines, but it never came through. It always felt sort of um, undefined. And so at any rate, like all that said, if you are interested in saving some money and if you are in the Apple ecosphere at all, um, then check out Apple One because it might save you some money and the part that got it for me is all of those services are shared with up to six people. So my kids can get Apple arcade games for free now or, or well included in my price. Um, they can all read magazines that are in the Apple news plus stuff. They can all listen to their own music without taking over my stream. Right. So like fitness all of that plus. fitness plus, which I don't have an Apple watch probably will never get one. So um, that doesn't do anything for me, but it is included in there. So I've, I've used that too. It's actually really cool. It, it's basically like, how would you comp- like, think if you had to compete with Peloton, but without a bike, how might you do it? And so, you know, you get to watch and you, you can do it. You can have that kind of experience. So, um, so, uh, I hate to do this. Let me give you like two, <laughs> two bonus tips to go along with this though, because since you're talking about like high fidelity like lossless music these two are going to come in handy one is you can go to storage like on on your iphone or whatever your your ios device is you can go to storage and you'll see the music app and how much it's it's taking up in that if you click on that you can actually scroll down to the bottom and you can see everything that you've downloaded and you can choose like no i don't want that one downloaded or maybe i want to get rid of all of them right? But here's the other thing to be aware of. If you go to the music app, I'm sorry, not the music app, the, the settings for the music app in the, the settings app. Does that make sense? Yes. If you scroll down, there'll be a section. There's a section called downloads and you can optimize your storage to say how many songs, how much space do you want to reserve for downloads? from the store and you can you know, make decisions about like downloading over seller and more specifically, do you want to download in Dolby Atmos? Right. Yeah. So you could turn that on and you could say like, Hey, because the reason why I say that is like, I ran into a situation here in the last uh, couple of weeks where, you know, uh, my phone was claiming to be out of storage and I'm like, how's that possible? Like I don't have, that many apps, like most of my stuff is like pictures and video or, you know, music kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, I looked and the, the music app was taking up like 106 gig on my phone. So I'm like, why, why are you not being smart about this? And it was because I didn't have the optimized turned on. So it was just like, well, no, you wanted to download everything. So we're downloading everything. And it would have, it had stuff that I'd never listened to. I'm like, why would that even be there? Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, I ended up limiting that. So yeah, cool. bonus tip. Excellent. All right. Well, we've said enough. 
And uh, we got to get Jay-Z out of here. It's past his bedtime. Uh, uh-huh, not tonight. He's going to be... Not tonight. Oh, that's right. Are he, you about to start? About to pick the theme. Well, okay. you know, by the time you, you're listening to this, it's already been picked. Yep. And the topic was... No. Um, so, <laughs> so, so like I said earlier, uh, subscribe to us on uh, iTunes, especially with your Apple One. Uh, pour one out for Spotify, but you can still find us there. Uh, yep. Stitcher, hey... We're only there once now. That's progress, right? That's pretty good. Acid compliant. That's what Stitcher's database is. <laughs> now it's acid compliant. Uh, so yeah, uh, if you if you haven't already left us a review, you know Jay Z, he almost got it. But uh, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, while you're up there, make sure you check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And like we said at the top of the show, if you want a chance to win this amazing book, leave us a comment on this episode. And uh, yeah, send your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack community. And Slack is the best place, but we also got a Twitter, uh, at CodingBoxing. You see uh, updates on events and stuff like uh, CodingBox Game Jam. Woohoo! January. And uh, we got other social links there at the top of the webpage. 